block. about anthropology I belong to a group called the Society for the Anthropology of Consciousness and uh, I joined that group a while back because of my interest in the study of consciousness as somebody who studies ancient religions or just religion in general and how symbolic consciousness how these ritualized symbolic activities that we call religion um, help us to access and expand symbolic consciousness I think this is uh, fascinating and essential work Uh, for our understanding of the human condition. It's a great quote from an author named Ruth Benedict from the Chrysanthemum and the Sword, and it says, the purpose of anthropology is to make the world safe for human differences. And boy, do we need a bunch of people to go major in anthropology at the moment. Um, The other thing that I was thinking about uh, is this very show, you know, um, after these election results. We, we, we try not to be political here. We try not to deal with the sort of traditional Democrat, Republican electoral politics. But <clears throat> so much of what we talk about on the show certainly skirts these kinds of things and how people define themselves and their relationship to one another and their obligation to one another. Um, we started this show two years ago, a little over a year ago. Look at me getting ahead of myself. Um, with the intent on telling stories of creativity and transformation. How do people um, who get handed something in life and not always something they expected or wanted um, or that was fair or equitable uh, for them, but nonetheless were handed something uh, and then went on to turn that life into a life of meaning and purpose and transformation for themselves and for others. And... It was always my idea that, you know, whether it be environmental or geopolitical or socioeconomic or personal, um, that all of us are heading for these unforeseen tragedies. And sometimes they are massive and that we need to find ways uh, to transform ourselves even in the midst of those things. And so with these election results, I suddenly feel that our show is as relevant as ever, maybe even more so. Suddenly it feels like it really matters 
to do what we're doing here at On The Block Radio. Um, because if there was ever a time when people needed to hear stories um, of how to transform their situation and their understanding and their perspective into one of, uh, from one of chaos and uh, dystopian fear and horror to one of purpose and meaning and cohesive community, I think that time is now. Um, you know, without going, I could go off for another hour on what I think about this election, but some dear friends of mine and friends of the show had been saying before the election uh, that the work is always ours. If Bernie wins, if Jesus wins, if Hillary Clinton wins, if Donald Trump wins, um, our goal and our work is to find one another in this chaos and listen to one another uh, and really try to do the hard and difficult work of building substantive, lasting, and meaningful community with one another. I personally am done uh, slinging mud at people. I'm done calling people names on social media. I'm done attacking people that are people of faith or who have different political ideas than I do. I am shifting into uh, a place of needing to be a profound and active listener. As Caleb Stevens said when he was on our show, when people tell me they're suffering, I'm going to go ahead and believe them. And by the way, from here forward, that's going to be white people and men. And two, I'm done with talking about mansplaining. I'm done with talking about white tears. I'm done deciding who gets to be in pain and who isn't. If we ignore our shadow in this country, if we ignore our actual history, we do it at our peril. And this Trump presidency, <clears throat> excuse me, is, is <clears throat> our collective shadow coming to bite us in the ass. People, we have never been anything but this. I, you know, you can go online right now and look up pictures of American, pre former American presidents like George H. W. and George W. Bush, and by the way, people who were almost presidents on the left <clears throat> and are still very influential in government, like John Kerry being a part of the Yale Skull and Bone Society where they drink wine in sacred, satanic, weird, cultic, fucking orgiistic ceremonies out of the stolen skull of Geronimo. Why do they do this? To celebrate the end of the Indian Wars and the absolute decimation of the peoples who lived in this land when we stole it from them. This secret society that does this, this is all a matter of public record, and you can go find pictures online right now of George W. Bush standing there all dopey right over the skull of Geronimo. So this idea of the benevolent overseer, this idea that the British invented, that if you have tea and speak properly and wear a powdered wig and, 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 and are genteel right in, in, in your public persona, this is Machiavellian people uh, uh, <clears throat> that, that you can then turn around and decimate people right and and that's fine so which which nice president uh did we have that uh that that ignored the terms of the fort fort laramie treaty which nice president was it exactly that unleashed 60 years of neoliberal policies corporatist policies policies on central and south america as people were being hurled out of helicopters right for trying to organize uh, workers right and and advocate for a living wage in those countries or the fact that these uh, international and mostly American corporations like United Fruit could come in and decimate the land, take all of the resources and leave the people with nothing. Which nice president was allowing that to occur? So we need to wake up people and this idea that if Hillary would have won, we would have been fine. 
is ridiculous. It's ridiculous, right? It would have kicked the can down the road for another generation of us not being uh, willing to, us white, comfortable liberals, to look at what we are and what this nation was founded on and what it continues to do, right? Obama's going to okay the Dakota Access Pipeline. Obama led BP back into the Gulf. Uh, Obama's going to, has deported more Mexicans than any president in U.S. history, right? So, so you know, this idea that the left is smart and compassionate and 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 altruistic, and the right is just filled with a bunch of racist, uh, greedy homophobes is is ridiculous. We need to start talking to one another. You know, here's an idea, folks. Try not to argue with or block anybody for a while, right? All of, if you voted for Trump, unfriend me. If you voted for Jill Stein, unfriend me. If you voted for Gary Thompson, unfriend me, right? So you want to retreat more into your fucking little echo chamber, right? You want to hide more in your bubble. So you think the answer to what happened this week is to go hide more in your, in your self-congratulatory little liberal Facebook bubble and block and hide from everybody who thinks and acts and feels differently than you. How many folks on the left do I know, right, that are now ridiculing protesters around this country for showing their fear and their rage at the things that they were just told are going to happen to them, right? So already we're splintering and devouring each other on the so-called left, right? Because we want to keep the same script. We want to keep this narrative, right? That this country is something that it never has been. So we better wake up and we better do it fast, right? Instead of blocking people and, and, and making these pronouncements on fucking Twitter and Facebook about how you want to block and shame and, and ridicule and hide from everyone and everything that's different than you, maybe reach out, maybe think a little bit. How about considering something other than your own sheltered opinion, especially to those who think differently than you right now? If we have any hope of moving forward together, people, and building, you want to build a society that's robust and lasting and is characterized by equity and safety and opportunity for all, then you better learn how to start listening and talking to one another. And yeah, goddammit, I'm talking about myself first, but I mean you too. If five people listen to this show, if five million listen to this show, this show is going to be dedicated to loving fiercely and seeking out the other in the coming years. Because I, for one, am no longer going to hide in a little echo chamber in a little bubble of my own making. I'm looking for people further left than me. I'm looking for people further right than me. I'm looking for people who are more faithful than I am. I'm looking for people who are less fascinating and educated and hot and brilliant as myself, if that's even possible. Stop shaming other people's pain, everybody. Stop worrying about white tears and mansplaining and feminazis and socialists and all these other bullshit labels that we've invented in order to justify our disdain and dismissiveness for one another. Now is the time to love radically and completely. Transformation is upon us and it's not going to be easy or quick, but it can be glorious. This old story is gasping, it's lurching to maintain control over the other narratives pushing to be born, so let's not let that happen. Let us work together to midwife our, our collective becoming. You know, this was never about him, this was never about her, this has always been about us. The shadow of our past is now staring us directly in the face, but it need not be our future. But the only way that's going to happen, people, is if we confront it directly, honestly, and completely in order to turn it into its beatific other. 
That's my two cents on this. I'm here, I'm ready to go to work, I'm ready to listen, and I'm ready to be a part of a conversation that isn't built on minimizing and dismissing the pain of others, but bringing it into a collective where we will share and bear each other's burdens and work together for a way forward that makes the world unequivocally, unequivocally safe, equitable, and filled with opportunity for all. That, that's it. That's my agenda going forward, and uh, if you want to join me on that, you know how to find me. <clears throat> Our guests this week are folks that are doing that in their own right and have been doing it for quite some time. Um, you know, we had a vegan boy, Josh, give us a, uh, a shout out a while back and said, hey, man, you got to get these, uh, you know, loving the show, loving the people you have on, but, you know, you got you to talk to some people that were, you know, born after... 1952 <laughs> you know I, a lot of my luminaries a lot of the folks i really appreciate are like me man we're old what do you want that's what happens it'll happen to your ass too soon enough um but but vegan boy josh and you know wrote us and said hey there are some folks that are you know under 65 that also got a few things going on that you might want to talk to on your show and he mentioned uh, the folks over at microcosm joe beal ellie blue and joshua plogue uh, do, uh they're doing this dinner and bikes tour around the country and uh, among all of the other million things they have going on and um what a what a great great opportunity we had to speak with them we got a hold of them they came out to the college and we were able to to talk with joe and ellie first and then in our third segment we speak with joshua the the traveling punk rock vegan chef um and what they do is again uh, among many things that we'll talk about in the interview they work together on this thing called the dinner and bikes tour which is this month-long tour of the u.s uh, to bring people together to eat delicious vegan food and get inspired about bicycle transportation, right? So folks show up at these events at the tour and they get this wonderful seven-course gourmet vegan and gluten-free buffet spread. Uh, we talked to Joshua about how he's had to go commando, uh, you know, in chopped kitchen style and, and, and sometimes pull these meals, uh, not literally, but close to literally out of, out of his ass and go to a 7-Eleven to come up with the materials to make a, a beautiful seven course and delicious and healthy and uh, on the cheap meal. Fascinating, um, fascinating dude with a, with a wonderful skill set. And then <clears throat> Ellie and Joel co-present a new uh, interactive discussion and presentation that includes all kinds of things. They show uh, several short films about groundswell movements, uh, incidences where people demand better neighbor conditions and then went to successfully implement them. <clears throat> they, talk about, they talk about how in Pennsylvania, uh, Reading, Pennsylvania became the 13th on the whole East Coast for bike commuting without any advocacy or government spending. Think about that in terms of right now when we're heading into this era when for sure, at least in the short term, you know, government spending on projects that, that we would care about, this kind of stuff, right, on, on bike commuting and um, <clears throat> what we would call, you know, more leftist kinds of thinking, although I'm dead set on getting away from this. I think righties and Christians can ride their bikes too, yeah. Um, but, but, but moving away from uh, this top-down approach, waiting for government spending or city or state or, 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 or federal folks to come in and, and take the lead, they're taking the, the lead in these cities themselves. Uh, they tell stories of former gang members riding bikes to raise awareness about gang violence. Um, 
On and on it goes. City of Portland, Sunday Parkways, uh, as a, working as a response to gentrification. And so I was amazed to sit with them and talk with them because the converse, conversation isn't about the sort of, oh, everyone should ride their bikes more and they'll be healthier or, uh, you know, the kind of standard. I mean, I remember asking them that and they were all sort of looking at me like, oh, look at the, the silly old guy. He doesn't really get what's going on here. Um, right. As a guy who, as I said in the interview, ate a cheeseburger in his car on the way to the interview. Uh, but that's not where they're coming from, man. There's so much more happening here, you know. And again, Joe, co-producer and director of Groundswell and then Microcosm Publishing, um, get over to our website to get all the links over to the stuff they're doing. Ellie, uh, with her work on bikeonomics, right? How bicycling can save the economy. Uh, just fascinating book. Uh, just filled with the data um, on on exactly that on these transformational kinds of uses of public space. Um, so uh, I couldn't be more happy to speak with them as the country, you know, is moving into this unprecedented and for many scary territory where we're heartened by the kinds of young people that, that Joe and, and Ellie and Joshua represent. Uh, they aren't looking for a savior or a political party to make the world a better place for them. They're not waiting around for that. They're hitting the ground. Uh, and making it better themselves, building community, empowering marginalized voices, and advocating for a world that doesn't constantly run itself adrift under the weight of its own hubris and, and apathy. Uh, so God and goddess bless to Joe, Ellie, and Joshua. Thank you for being a loyal on the block radio listener and uh, stay in touch with us folks we need each other now more than ever and all ideas are welcome if you come to the table with honesty with clarity with fairness and compassion um, with the intention of working together to build a community that is safe accessible and filled with opportunity for all, then I am your ally from this point forward. Um, that's the dividing line. None of these other kinds of things that we've used to this point. No longer am I playing the game of left-right, of Democrat-Republican, of liberal-conservative, of uh, any of that kind of stuff. Right? That's not the way I'm moving forward from today in defining myself and in defining my relationship with you. I'm a human being, and if you're listening to the show, so are you. And we have an obligation to one another and to the people in our lives and in this world less fortunate than ourselves to make the world a better place. And that's not some kind of kumbaya shit. That's a moral and functional uh, imperative. And I'm ready to try to meet it with you. Um, <clears throat> you know how to find me if you're in that same space. All right, folks, we love you. Thanks for listening to the show. And we will see you on the other side. Bicycle, bicycle. Bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle, bicycle, bicycle. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride my bike. I want to ride my bicycle. I want to ride it where I like. You say black, I say white. You say bar, I say bite. You say shark, I say him. And George was never my scene, and I don't like Star Wars. I say Royce, you say God, give me a choice. Say Lord, I say Christ, I don't believe in Peter Pan, Frankenstein, or Superman.
Bicycling can save the economy, and I'm talking to you from Portland, Oregon, in the United States, where I live. I want to talk today a little bit about some of the barriers that are common in different countries in the economics of bicycling. It's. I want to start by saying that I think it's really telling that people in the United States compare ourselves to the Dutch rather than to say the Chinese or the Mexicans, who also have very strong bicycling numbers. It's an economic thing mostly, as well as maybe a racial thing. Uh, whatever the actual reality, we see people in the Netherlands as universally having a higher quality of life, more disposable income, etc. Whereas in China, people seem to be very poor and not free to us. Uh, we have created bicycle infrastructure here in the U.S. that is economically aspirational. But at the same time, this bicycle infrastructure has often left behind the individuals and communities who are right here in the United States and in Portland very poor and not free at all. And these are the people, incidentally, who have always been bicycling, still are bicycling, and perhaps who need bicycle facilities more than anybody, even if they're not getting them. Perhaps you can relate. In Portland, we complain about slow progress and existing infrastructure, and we hold up the Netherlands as the gold standard that we will never be able to reach. I, know, I mean, I know this is silly. I've been to The Hague, for instance. But then again, maybe people also complain in um, your cities. It's a little hard for me to imagine any problems in your golden bicycling land, so I asked your conference organizer, what are the top problems facing the people who are at this conference? The number one response was that cycling infrastructure is just too cheap, and that this is contradictory because 
but the low cost of bicycle projects don't receive the political attention that they deserve. In the United States, we have this exact problem as well. Much of our transportation infrastructure is funded federally, where we have the opposite problem. To get enough funding to do something well, we still do not meet the minimum cost requirement for federal transportation funding. So almost all bike infrastructure happens locally, which is why we have some places that are becoming bicycle utopias and others that are proudly make it difficult or even illegal to ride a bicycle. But the real problem, in the United States at least, is that we just aren't thinking big enough. When it costs, say, $100,000 to make a street more bicycle friendly, that's less than the cost of a house, probably on that street. And it helps the public immensely, and there's a huge return on investment. But this amount of money is fought over as though it were this huge fortune and a huge public investment. So I say, why not propose that huge public investment, at least as a better place to start? I asked Todd Littman, who is a transportation economist in Canada, how much it would cost to make the entire United States bicycle friendly. I didn't expect him to have an answer, but he did actually quickly come up with a figure. Um, he told me that the city of Minneapolis got an experimental federal grant to build bicycle infrastructure throughout the city. It cost about $100 for resident, all told. For comparison, that's the cost of taking every person in the city out for a fancy dinner with wine. And their investment worked. The year after they finished making all of these bicycle improvements, the Minneapolis beat Portland and was named the best bicycle city in the United States. That might not be saying a lot, but it's, it's something. If you spent $100 for every U.S. resident to make our country as bike-friendly as Minneapolis, the total cost would be $32 billion this year. For comparison's sake, that's the amount that the company Twitter is worth. It's also the net worth of Amazon.com CEO Jeff Bezos. It's the amount the U.S. Army has spent on developing new weapons this year. Uh, it is also the amount of our annual spending shortfall on roads and bridges. The difference is that infrastructure for cars and trucks immediately begins to depreciate, whereas bicycle infrastructure actually brings, brings in money at every level, to individuals, to local businesses, to the healthcare system, to the government. I know I don't need to convince you all of this. The second concern that was brought up is budgets. Um, and at times there's a budget to do something, but often not enough of a budget to do it well in terms of bike projects. Locally, we need to get creative. In Portland, our Water Bureau secured a very large amount of funding to improve the city's sewer and system and drainage into our river, and partly that was environmental protection money to help solve runoff problems. Um, this involved road work on a large number of neighborhood streets, so the Transportation Department and the Water Bureau cleverly decided to work together um, and as the streets were replaced, they became bicycle boulevards. Unfortunately, there was some major public backlash to this effort. The story was delivered to the newspapers in this way where the city was saying, look at this, we made these, this beautiful bicycle boulevard network using Water Bureau funding, and Portland has incredibly high water bills. This is, of course, a source of major public resentment, and it's in part to pay for this project. So the story, instead of like the city is saving money and doing two things at once, the story ended up being that your water bill is funding those cyclists. Which leads us to the third concern that was mentioned for you all, which is um, people protesting that space is taken away from cars. I feel like this is often very much an equity issue. It's an integral part of the economics of transportation, that the people with the greatest voice in society are also the ones with the most personally and socially expensive transportation mode. 
the car. So of course here in the US that means it's almost impossible to regulate cars. You have it very good over there where people who drive probably actually have good reason to feel put upon, but here everybody every day gets in their car and there's just never enough road, never enough coming back to you. There's a strong sense of entitlement. I have a friend in Portland who recently began driving and complains that we have successfully made it very inconvenient to drive but have not implemented convenient alternatives in Portland, which is really the truth if you're going beyond the kind of three or four mile uh, circumference of the city center. But at the same time, if in the Netherlands, as I've heard, your numbers of bike commuters are shifting down and your car commuters are shifting up, then it's likely that more and more people from across the economic spectrum are relying on cars. So the penalties for driving often affect poorer people disproportionately. Any kind of tolls and fees and encouragement of high parking costs and congestion fees can become truly regressive. This is absolutely a social justice issue, but the answer is not to deregulate driving. Perhaps it is something more like critical mass, an idea which came from China before the automobile took over. Having more regulation, you have more encouragement of street culture. And in closing, I want to say that we in the United States, especially in Portland, we're following your lead. So I hope that you can do better than we have and better even than you're doing now so that we can be inspired to do better in turn. Our bicycle advocacy problem in the U.S. is that we have historically always asked for less than we want and then we only managed to achieve a fraction of what we're asking for. Now that's starting to change, we're starting to think big and ask for more. But we still struggle to have grand visions here. We need someone else to have the bigger vision and then we can ask for a small part of it. It is obvious that one of the best things to happen for every country's transportation, health, culture, climate, and economy would be an end to the era of the private car. The U.S. is not going to be a leader in this, so we are looking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to On the Block. Of all of the voices in your head, thanks for making ours one of them. We'll be back in a moment. Alrighty, welcome to the show, folks. This is your host, Andy Gerbich. I'm excited about our guests this week. The Dinner and Bikes Tour is a month-long tour of the U.S. to bring people together to eat delicious food and get inspired by uh, about bicycle transportation. As the audience arrives, they them, uh, they serve themselves from Chef Joshua. How do you say his last name? Plug. Plugs. I was going to say Plug. So Plug's mm-hmm. seven-course gourmet, vegan, and gluten-free buffet spread. While the audience is eating, local advocates discuss their work and lo- local issues and initiatives over the first 15 minutes. Then... Ellie Blue and Joe Beal co-lead a new interactive discussion and presentation, including eight short films about groundswell movements, incidences where people demand better neighborhood conditions, and then successively, successfully went on to implement them. Stories include how Reading, Pennsylvania came to be 13th on the East Coast for bike commuting without any advocacy or government spending, former gang members riding bikes to raise awareness about gang violence, Mexico City's superhero of the streets is at Pitonito, Peatonito. Peatonito. Damn. All right. Thank you. We'll get we'll get back to that. We'll cut that out in post. Mm-hmm. Um, story of the League of American Bicyclists Equity Council and uh, how the city of Portland Sunday Parkways worked 
uh, worked as a response to gentrification and how cyclists are representing themselves and creating their own voices all over the world. Throughout the evening, there are plenty of opportunities for discussion, questions, and browsing the microcosm pop-up book and t-shirt store. Joe Beal is the uh, co-producer, director of Groundswell, the director of the feature documentary Aftermath, Bicycling in a Post-Critical Mass Portland, uh, as well as over a hundred short films. He's also the author of half a dozen books, including Good Trouble, Building a Successful Life and Business with Asperger's. He founded Microcosm Publishing in his bedroom closet in 1996 and has since published over 350 nonfiction books, zines, and movies. He lives in Portland, Oregon. Ellie Blue is the co-producer, director of Groundswell, and the author of Bikeonomics, How Bicycling Can Save the Economy and Everyday Bicycling, How to Ride a Bicycle for Transportation, Whatever Your Lifestyle. When she isn't writing, she is marketing director for Microcosm Publishing, producing books and zines about all aspects of feminism, self-empowerment, and bicycle transportation. She lives in Portland, Oregon. Ellie and Joe, welcome so much to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Uh, There's a kid named uh, Vegan Boy Josh. I don't know if you know who this is on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) We know that kid. Apparently Uh you do. Uh He's a troublemaker. Very old boy. Very old boy. (laughs) And he recommended, uh, he wrote me, he's a listener of the show, and he said... uh, you know, I love the program, and, and I think you got to have these folks on. He directed me to you. And the fascinating thing is, um, you know, we do a show here about creativity and transformation, how people are, are using their gifts, using their passion to, to affect transformation in the world. And um, I talk to a lot of old anthropologists and people that study psychedelics and, and a lot of kind of old, dusty critters like myself. And, and he recommended you folks. And it was fascinating to me because vegan young bike activist as i was driving over here eating my cheeseburger with my old self i thought i you're i could you couldn't be different more different from me and normally when i do this show um i feel like i'm sort of co-leading the discussion with the guests because it's an area that i have some or i feel like i have some area of expertise in whether i do or not that's uh, that's a whole different thing but this show I really feel like one of the listeners. Listeners, I'm going to be asking you questions and then sort of sitting here with my hands on my, you know, uh, you know, on my chin, wondering uh, as you explain how all of my life choices thus far are uh, inadequate and uh, harmful to the planet and myself. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I really do mean that. So, I guess uh, let's start with how did you two meet? Well, we met um, when Joe came to my office to film me in his documentary, Aftermath. This is kind of in dispute, this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually met years prior. but Oh, okay. So, so what's so your version? <laughs> we met at City Hall, as uh, all good things begin, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a, a art, uh, what did they call it? Uh, bike craft. Bike craft. They, they had a, a more elaborate name for that one, since it was at City Hall. This was the era of Sam Adams, uh, maybe 2006. Okay. And so they were really trying to, like, you know, it was the city putting on the friendly face of, like, we let these people come to City Hall now. Oh, okay. You know, and yeah. so that, um, and then I was, uh, I had, you know, uh, 20, almost 21 years now I've been designing uh, iconography and I was selling t-shirts and stickers and patches and books there. Mm-hmm. And Ellie was one of my customers and I engaged her and she does not remember this interaction, but we actually talked for several minutes. And I, um, you know, and, and, you know, I, I guess 
Our, our statements are not necessarily in dispute as much as uh, she just doesn't recall this interaction. <laughs> but your I, I remember it very clearly. I bought a t-shirt for my sister, which she never wore. <laughs> <laughs> it's the intention that counts. Mm-hmm. And, but you remember him coming to your office to film you for part of this documentary. Mm-hmm. And what was the documentary about? Uh, so it is the story of the last um, 40 years of how Portland became North America's number one bicycling city, hmm. which is, um, you know, now something of a like a tarnished flag. But, you know, it is uh, it's an interesting story, I think, to like look at from a, like an urban perspective of like how how does this stuff happen? You yeah. know, and it's not like, you know, it's not the story that we're kind of fed, you know, so it's a lot of like street protest and. You know, people kind of like not doing things by the book and, you know, kind of a little bit of like civil disobedience at, at kind of every stage since 1971. And then, uh, and so that was kind of, um, you know, that was a little bit of a, it was starting to rub me wrong the way the story was being told. Yeah. So like I had a little bit of a get off my lawn moment. Mm-hmm. And then I was kind of like, oh, and then a friend um, who, uh, co-directed co-produced with me uh reverend phil siano uh he was the one that was like well just make a movie out of this and then you don't have to be grumpy about it no more (laughs) you can get it out there Mm -hmm. i remember a lot of you know i moved here in 91 and i remember things like the zoo bombers Mm -hmm. and i you know i started uh when i started trying to make documentary films i got a buddy named joe lombroso who was a messenger kid in town here and he was really tied up with all those uh all those kids that play i call everybody a kid because i feel like everyone's younger than me but (laughs) All those guys, all those people that played uh, a polo, bike polo. We'd all go out oh, to North Portland yeah. and film those guys playing bike polo, and that was a really amazing scene. Mm-hmm. Checking mm-hmm. that out as well. I have many hours of footage of bike polo in Portland myself. Um, we'll get to. Uh, well, actually, no. Where did the idea for? How did you guys meet Joshua? And where did the idea for uh, Dinner and Bikes Tour come from? Well, Joe and Joshua went way, way, way back. Yeah, we jo- met in 95. Will he dispute this with an, another version, no, too? Or is this no. you both agree on we this? We have <laughs> um, corroborated our story on this and do agree, unlike some other people, about how things transpired. So, so Ellie is the Blade Runner. So Joshua, he will dispute this part. Mm-hmm. He is a queer core pioneer, which was like the gay punk rock movement. Homo core, it was called like pre uh, Joshua, and then he sort of reinvented it as this thing where you're like, you have fun, you're, you know, like you're not like a serious stick in the mud, you're yeah. like, you know, and, and, and so he had this band, um, Behead the Prophet, No Lord Shall Live, um, which was one of Spin's top 100 band names of all time. Yeah, that's an amazing <laughs> And uh, And so he came to um, where I grew up in Cleveland, uh-huh. and he played a remarkably great show to maybe a dozen people um, in 1995, where they set off, you know, fireworks indoors, and, uh, and then, you know, the police came, and it was really, like... It could not be, have been more memorable, honestly. Wow, you know, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, <laughs> especially you know, like I was seventeen. You know, yeah, so yeah. it was like particularly great for me. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> and so, um, and then well, I where kept, are those guys from? <laughs> and they, yeah, they were from uh, originally Olympia, Seattle, and then uh, they. You know, I lost touch with them, and then, you know, almost 10 years later, he shows up at my house when I had, after I moved to Portland, and, you wow. know, and I was like, wait, you're that guy, you know? And That's then, remarkable. And then uh, he was like, yeah, I'm cooking food now. And I was like, oh, great, yeah. And then uh, my 
roommate at the time was like, you have to do a cookbook with him before he gets too famous because he ain't, ain't going to want to do it anymore. <laughs> you I know? don't know any hardcore gay vegan punk rock <laughs> masters. Yeah, this is amazing to hear. Mm-hmm. And then, and you know, I'm part now of Now I'm really mad that the, this phone thing happened in this interview, right? Because I need I need him chiming in right now. Mm-hmm. But we'll get, we'll get him. We'll get him. Yeah, you, you, can, you can edit him in. Yeah. And he... Uh, <laughs> he I mean, aside from all that, like as a pioneer of like mm-hmm. a movement that is still going strong, mm-hmm. he um, is also a very exceptional chef. You know, I mean, we have other, I don't know how many, a dozen other cookbook chefs on the roster, but he's the one that we're like, okay. Well, you know, part of it is like his shtick is like, I can cook anywhere under any conditions with anything or nothing. You know, and so he's the perfect person to go on tour. But it was actually Ellie that demanded that he come on our tour. So before <laughs> Chopped or any of these kinds of things, this guy was improvising, you know, with, with whatever's in the cabinet and making it, make turning it into magic and medicine for people. That's cool. Yeah, when I first met Joshua, he was on tour with Joe on a tour that I was not on. Mm-hmm. And they were on this sort of omnibus tour where they had... Um, Let's see, there was someone who had written a book about how to fix your bike and was giving bike repair demonstrations. And someone who had written a book about silk screening and was giving, like, you could bring your shirt to the tour and have it silk screened. And then there was someone that had written a book about being a commercial fisherwoman. Yeah. And she um, was singing sea shanties and tying knots. And then Joshua was cooking food. And I think Joe told me that the food budget was, what, $30 a night? Mm, $20, please. $20 a night. So they We're would not go made to, of money. So they would go to the convenience <laughs> store and Joshua would cook a gourmet vegan meal out of like whatever was at the gas station on that dusty food section I was that's, really really impressed that's really amazing so when we when I started going on tour we went on one just Joe and I and it was like long drives and long days of work and like all the events were during dinner time mm-hmm. and so my condition for doing it again was only if Joshua came with us and cooked food for the audience and mostly it was because I my own blood sugar was not was holding crashing, up but yeah. it actually <laughs> ended up being this really nice thing that made people more comfortable having harder conversations and really more focused at the event. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I was just going to say, like, feeding people already gets them into the mode of, like, they can now sit for a couple of hours and really engage the material instead of, like, all right, when can we wrap this up so I can go get something to eat? <laughs> and that's part of it. And, and it then, creates community, like, immediately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, it's such a great gesture. And so that's, like, part one and two. And then mm-hmm. part three is, like, he's, like, tech in a way where he's, you know, like, triggering parts of their brain to, yeah. like, have, you know. He, he makes his food spicy, so it's, like, uh he he says that it you know he'll tell you all the things that that does to your brain and then it, how it'll engage them to talk more or to and doesn't it fold right into the kinds of things you're talking about, about how to, to leave a, a smaller footprint, about how to live healthier lifestyles, use less resources? I mean, like, it seems like eating a diet like that and then, like, being a bike commuter, like, those things just overlap in terms of the the sort of mission statement of each, right? They fold over together pretty nicely. Sure. I mean, it's interesting because, like, when we go to these events, I think people come in really thinking of, like, the ecologics of it or sort Mm -hmm. of the sustainability angle of Mm -hmm. the bicycling and the food but it's never neither of those things has ever been I mean not since I was a teenager really the first thing on my mind like um, not because I don't believe that those things are good but more because it's like everybody knows like you know everybody knows about ecological crisis Mm -hmm. everybody knows about like what's healthy and what isn't but the whole world is set up in this way where the incentives are just all wrong so like you can make personal choices all day long 
and still you could basically like just stress yourself out trying to make these like impossible choices in a system that's not set up for it. And what we talk about more is sort of like the social and economic side of things. Because uh, you were both kind of cringing when I was making that observation. And so it's fascinating I, 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 to hear that. I was going <laughs> to start asking, asking you about a little bit about that. And I want to ask you a couple of things. I was in prepping to talk with you. I was looking into this concept of, I guess it's called vehicular cycling. Cycling. <laughs> Oh, you got right. Right. Yeah. And so if you can maybe explain to our audience what that is and then how what like protected bike lane infrastructure, how that differs from from this concept. And I would say there's a raging debate in the bike advocacy movement, which mm-hmm. is about as valid a debate as the one between Republicans and Democrats between mm-hmm. like, should we have that no bad, bicycle huh? <laughs> infrastructure <laughs> whatsoever? And everybody just gets educated to be able to ride their bicycle really, really skillfully, like mm-hmm. like uh, be a very world class skillful cyclist. Or should we have only protected bike lanes and like tons of infrastructure and big investments? And I just, I mean, it's interesting, but it's kind of a false debate because it really isn't getting at the important point about who needs to go where and how do they access that space and what are the actual barriers to accessing that space. And it's like the most exclusive club that you could imagine you know i mean and you Both know of them are right right yeah i mean and it's like uh the vehicular cycle well uh, yeah i mean and they're both pretty bad i guess it's kind of that's the thing that kind of motivated our our the package of our tour and like the you know after the first four or five years of it we were like this is actually not like even interesting to like react to or engage in like we'd rather just have a totally different conversation different conversation around what be and and you know and so it's like you you there's a common misnomer or misconception that are like that we're vegan evangelists mm-hmm. and it's real and it and it's really just as simple as the fact is like the reason that the meal is vegan is so anybody can eat it. Yeah, that's a good you point. Know? And that's the whole thing. That yeah, that's c- a really good point, yeah. Because there's nothing worse than, like, people come and then they're like, oh, well, I can't eat, you know. And so, like, he actually has a, a list on the on the page where it's like, okay, this person can't eat nuts and this person can't eat this and that, you know. And so he'll actually write out what's in everything on the, you know, mm-hmm. like on the seven courses so then people can either, like, not serve themselves or you know a lot of times he just won't make something if he knows that there's people that can't do it and so you know and it's like and that's like a punk rock thing too to like take the personal individual stuff and like be responsive to it rather than just like well tough luck you know and so our um we're trying to elevate the conversation Mm -hmm, i guess mm -hmm. because it's like i mean everybody on earth knows that bicycling is like healthy for your body and like you know, and that it's like good for the planet and what you know, and it's like we're we're, it, and that isn't changing people's behavior, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and okay. so and it's like only in America would the argument be like you should feel guilty because you know this stuff and you're not changing your behavior, right? And a lot of times it's even like the advocates or the public employees whose job it is to change behavior that aren't changing their own behavior, and then they're like, well, how do we make people feel guiltier? In order to like push them over the edge, you know. So you're looking at it from in terms of the uh, like how cities, how p- public space is designed. 
That's it, part of it. Part and of how it. people actually use the space and having designers actually, you know, build an infrastructure towards that, that natural, I guess what they're called is natural use spaces or what's the word, what's the concept I'm looking for? Well, we have this program. So our movie program is called Desire Lines, right? Desire Lines, yeah, yes. <laughs> I love that phrase. Um, and I think a lot of the people that we talk to are designers and planners, mm-hmm. but what we are believers in and the people that are highlighted in our movies are almost all people who are no matter what their day job is whether they're a bike advocate or a facilities planner or unemployed or a bike shop mechanic what we're showing is their story of how they decided to work at a grassroots level in their community and in their own life to use bicycling as a tool okay to make their lives better and that often ends up taking us very far outside the box of what planners think about and what engineers think about and what bicycle advocates think about um for instance we have one of the movies i like the best is um a feature about a guy named obai reed who lives in chicago and he was very deeply depressed and it was something that he wasn't really ready to admit to people. So he became very isolated and he'd like went for a bike ride one day as kind of a last ditch chance to save his life. Hmm. And his interactions with people just on that bike ride really started to pull him back. And he was like, this is amazing. Bicycling is saving my life. I want more people to do this with. So he like put out the word and he started this um, black bicycling group in Chicago called I think the pioneers mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he ended up becoming this leader and this advocate and then wow. he became the leader of the slow roll movement in Chicago the slow roll organization and uh, worked with all of these other organizations and just not just like found this meaning in his own life but created this thing that was much bigger than himself and kind of became an accidental bike advocate and I feel like that kind of story goes so far beyond this just idea that, like oh bicycling is good for you or oh we should have bike lanes and it's more like oh if we have a community all of this is possible we can like ask for the infrastructure that's right for our community or ask for it at all you know and in a place like chicago the in a place like anywhere in the u.s unfortunately Hmm. the bike advocates and the planners really think of bicycling as a thing that only white people want yeah and really whole communities often think that way so the bike lanes go into the you know neighborhood with the new condo and the coffee shop where they're trying to attract rich where the salt and straw is or the new seasons exactly yeah yeah. and then and then there's this idea of like you know, there isn't a lot of like necessarily listening to each other, understanding where each other are coming from, and that's what we're trying to do with the movies. I watched a, uh, a TED talk by uh, a guy named Michael Colville Anderson. Do you know mm-hmm. this person? And oh, he yeah. was, this is where I got these desire lines concept from. I mean, not that he came up with this, he was just speaking to it, as a lot of folks mm-hmm. do. And, and he made a point about how in many cities, these designers and urban planners work with computer models and work to sort of satisfy corporate or business or state interests but that they're they're not actually bike commuters or that you know they're not pedestrians or they don't take public transit themselves and that if they're not actually out there experiencing how the the city is being used that it's very difficult to to plan and develop it in a way that corresponds with actually how people are using it and so i i guess i have a two-part question one do you agree with that and then two i have an actual question for you about about that so you know we're we're sitting in the studios at mountain community college uh, at KMHD here in Gresham, Oregon, and and you rode here from from downtown Portland. Oh yeah, yeah, close right. enough. Inner, uh, inner Portland, yeah. Inner, inner inner southeast. Yeah. Okay, so I'm wondering what was that experience like for you <laughs> to get here uh, today, and 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 I guess maybe in the context of that, like what are we doing right in Portland? What do we need to be doing differently? Uh, you know, rooted around your actual trip to get here today, because I appreciate you taking your, the time to get here, and I'm sure your life was in your hands at least seven times on the way, or maybe not. 
Yeah, not quite. Okay. But I mean, I, you I don't know, want to mischaracterize things, but yeah, yeah, yeah so speak I to mean, that. it was in, in that neighborhood, but not okay, you know, okay, like maybe five. <laughs> okay, well, again, it I don't want to exaggerate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, we 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 was talking about how much we enjoyed it actually, because it's not something you get to do all the time. <laughs> thank I thank mean, goodness. Well, I guess you could do it all the time, but it's not something that like we do in the course of our daily lives, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, I guess on that point, it's like um, we, it's. I would agree with him in the sense that like. Obviously, the planning cabal is run by the Portland, you know, business associations, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's not ever something that's really in the interest of the population, you know. Yeah. And I don't think that's like shocking anybody that like follows that, you know. I mean, but it's like maybe they don't think of it as having negative repercussions for bicycling like it does for every other aspect of living in the city, mm-hmm. you know. But that's, um, you know, because it's just like you get more sway. And then even should, like, you know, somebody well-meaning, like, you know, penetrate politics and, like, have a seat at the table, it's, they're still the ones calling the shots, you right. know? So, like, even at that point, you get your Sam Adams or whatever, you know, or, or any of these people, your Charlie Hales, I guess, is an even better example mm-hmm. because he was so swayed by it, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and then, you know, the result is inevitable, you know? And then without uh, them, it's like... Somebody else has the biggest sway. But, you know, the um, like I was saying earlier, you know, I grew up um, on the east side of Cleveland, which mm-hmm. is not um, known for its uh, livability or um, it was actually where zoning and, um, you know, the separation of where you work, where you live, where you shop was created for the, which is now like the national model for the United States. Yeah. So, like, the bike ride here through, you know, from Portland into Gresham, to the station is like pretty much indicative of what bike riding was like for me in the 90s you oh, know wow. and so it was like but i would say it was actually better here <laughs> oddly enough but it's you know it's like that thing you go by trailer parks you go mm-hmm. by like the taco bell you go by you know these giant like silos you you know you just pass things that aren't scenic attractions you know and it's it, a city that is not necessarily and maybe this question to you ellie it's a city that is as large you know since the 90s it's just been wave after wave of folks moving in and so it's the fastest gentrifying city in the country it is not equipped for all of these cars that are that are now here um you can't widen the roads in most of the city and so we have this gridlock now and and more increase in road rage and um and, and and a lot of folks that you know we we have a city that that's really I guess trying when you want to talk about you know being one of the bike friendly city in the country and so I, we have folks trying to work with that space to make it bike friendly and encourage bike commuting but we also have a lot of people moving here who drive cars who have never been around people on a bicycle and so there's this kind of and you know and again I, I really appreciate what you said because like this car versus bike argument is a, probably another one of these things that sort of gets us nowhere and so I like <laughs> you're probably already going to say I don't want to talk about <laughs> pedestrians and I think that's what Joshua would say too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see what I mean? Is there a question in that? Help me out of this. Um, one. <laughs> yeah, sure. I I see I see a number. I mean, it's just been so interesting to watch Portland change over the years. And one of the things that I was really proud to be involved in back in like 2005 to 2008 was really 
it was I was involved very involved in bicycle activism mm-hmm. and um, car free activism and one of the things that made me proudest was when people I met people who would say I moved to Portland because I heard about what a great city it is to live car free and or to ride a bike in but then I started meeting more and more people who heard about what a great city Portland was to live in for all these same reasons and then moved here with their car mm-hmm. and then were very frustrated when driving that car turned out to not be you know the city was number one priority to make life easier and right. I think that really has raised a fever pitch now I mean everywhere you go anytime anyone is talking about development or transportation or whatever it's like there's this great specter of parking looming over everything Mm -hmm. and you know everyone wants to be able to store their car for free in a public space and that's just not possible and it's a terrible bind and you know I think the people at the city I don't envy them having to (laughs) deal with that (laughs) at all we had a ghost bike um, put up on 39th and Gladstone for a person that was hit by a a truck Um, and these are for folks that aren't in the Portland area these are where, where somebody lost their life on a bike um, and then not a week after the bike was put up, another truck hit the ghost bike right oh. at the sign, right, right, at, right at where it was attached to the sign. And then it was there crumpled for about a week until someone realized how horrific of a, of a, of the optics on that aren't very good. Right. And so Oof. then they replaced it. Right. But that spoke to me, um, about how there's still some work to do here. Right. And yeah. it, ma- it made me start thinking about public space. And I guess I want to ask you both about this. When I think about, you know, streets, you know, cars have only been around for about 100 years, but streets have been around for thousands, right? And so, what is, you know, what is a road? What is a street? And I, I understand now there's this acceptance that, you know, since the 50s, the, the public acceptance has been is the street is where cars and trucks go. And anything that's on the street that's not that is sort of in the way. You know, jaywalking laws and all this kind of stuff. And uh, and I'm wondering, you know, but before that, a street, you know, people would, would set up shop and sell things. They would come gather and talk. I mean, sure, they would, you know, you, know, you would move your carts and things up and in. There would be for transport as well. But it wasn't mostly for when cars first came around. Um, and someone would be barreling 35 miles an hour down a road and come out of control and smash into five people. People were furious, and the and the temperament was sort of like these automobile drivers are are imposing on our public space, right? But then a lot of work was done from the automobile industry to sort of not only flip public opinion, but then sort of get people into office to to say that these are now civic resources that are, are primarily for drivers. And so it feels like a lot of, and I, I guess that gets back to that first question of, uh, you know, of vehicular cycling versus, you know, whatever. But I mean, it seems like there are other places, that, you know, I, you know, and everyone brings up the Netherlands and I saw you do a talk with them, but little things like if it's raining, there's a sensor that, uh, that catches that and the cyclist light goes sooner. So people don't have to sit at a light longer while it's raining or snowing. Mm-hmm. Like even just this, like your livability index goes up so much just by these little kinds of considerations. It does. If you can afford to still live there. That's, well, and I think that's what we're finding in Portland, in Portland. Is we really modeled ourselves after the Netherlands and we really invested heavily in a lot of these kind of nifty things, which are great things. But then at the same time we were, developing for value we were developing for real estate value we were developing specifically for the benefit of people who own property and everyone who rents is now living out here and that was really what i was thinking about mostly while we were biking along as i as once we got past about 82nd or 90th i was like oh we're not in portland anymore as the world knows it like suddenly you know you're not seeing a sea of white faces you're seeing this like wonderfully diverse group of people you're seeing a lot more people in cars you're seeing different cars you're seeing like 
people walking much more than you yeah. often see in downtown Portland. Um, and I was, I mean, when, what you're just saying makes me think of one of the movies that we made for Groundswell that's available on our website at pdot.org. Um, the, uh, it's a short, very short profile of James Rojas, who's an urban planner and an artist mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. He coined the term Latino urbanism. And his, he goes around teaching workshops, where really sweet workshops, where he asks people to use toys to build the kind of public spaces they want to see. But his point is, like, if we want to learn how to have vibrant public spaces that are truly accessible to everybody, we don't need to look to the Netherlands. We just need to look to Latin America and mm. to the Latin American communities that are already existing in the United States and give people what they need to do to do what they're already doing and wow. you know and that's what I think it's it's hard I think for people who are in an elite sort of academic profession to look to Latin America for role models for when they're used building. to looking to Europeans for role models there's like a cultural d- that's really interesting. Like, there's some, yeah, there's that, there's still that sort of uh, Eurocentrism to looking to the Netherlands. Everyone wants to talk mm-hmm. about Sweden. Um, when you just brought that up, I think about Williams Avenue, right, where we put in all of this great yep. bike infrastructure, and then every person of color had to move out of, out of the area. And so, yep. it, in that situation, it was actually the, the putting in of the bike infrastructure actually was part of the raising of the value of the property, which made everybody all the diversity leave that historically diverse neighborhood. I mean. Williams in the 40s and 50s was the jazz capital in the Northwest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so how do we so how, how do we do that correctly? Where where are what are a model or two of where that's happening? Where it that's not happening? Where where Reading, the communities of color? Reading, Pennsylvania, okay. actually, is one of our case study films mm-hmm. um, that we just released, I believe, last week or the week before. Okay, and um, and it's exactly that. It's uh, you know, we had just come back from uh, Medellin, Colombia, mm-hmm. and we went there, and it, and Reading was actually more like what I thought Medellin would be like, where um, it's very, very dense. Um, it was designed, you know, when it was still the industrial capital and one of the shipping capitals, you know, like the Reading Railroad. And, uh, and now the school district is, you know, 90% uh, Latino. And it's, uh, you know, and then they have uh, the sort of the self-started, you know, they they break all the rules Mm -hmm. of how their bicycle movement happened. You know, it was really happening unbeknownst to, you know, uh, the government, you know, the city, any of it. There was no bike shop in the city proper. Hmm. There was no advocacy happening. You know, it was really, you know, it's. Peer to peer, huh? Yeah, yeah, and well, it was organic. Groundswell, um, like the name of your. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so that I mean, I feel like that's a good lesson to take. Um, naturally, like with all these things, whenever we release them, it's like the, the you know, that people try to find. You know, when the, I study, um, just to take us, you know, into a little bit of my world, uh, when I study religion and mythology and ancient religion, there's a real difference between law, especially when you look at it from the standpoint of authority and power, and and access and use, you know, right? Who the laws affect and who makes the laws. Law is something that there, there can be a law that's good and useful and helpful for the community, but or, or laws can be the absolute antithesis of that and be impediments to community building, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they can be artificial in these top-down things that only serve 
you know, the sort of people on the perches that actually make the laws. They can come from a king. They can come from a council. Sure. They, they could have no connection whatsoever to the communities. They can be used to oppress people. And we can come up with a million examples. Um, taboo is another thing entirely because taboo is something that only works if it arises from the ground up, if it arises organically, and if there's wholesale buy-in from the entire community. Mm-hmm. So the incest taboo. The right? parking taboo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> go ahead, what's that? <laughs> Don't take my parking, that's a major taboo. <laughs> oh, yeah, the parking taboo, yeah. Right. yeah. Unfortunately, okay, some of these, and so then we get into the, the iconoclast. Sometimes for a community to go forward, they, uh, some of their taboos have to be broken mm-hmm. because they no longer serve that community, right? I mean, so and, that would be. and that's like you, you brought it up. I mm-hmm. mean, I feel like you were almost getting to it. It's like jaywalking was a derogatory term coined by the auto industry to shift the blame yeah. onto pedestrians rather than who was actually killing the pedestrians. Right. You know? And Jays are being called a Jay was like, you're some yokel, you're from the country, you don't understand high city life, right? <laughs> As opposed to, I need to go to that building. And so mm-hmm. I'm just going to walk across to it right now, mm-hmm. which is how people did things you know, for hundreds of thousands of years until the automobile started murdering them for doing what they do naturally. And by the way, wildlife within the city as well. How many dead raccoons do we find? How many dead squirrels do we find? You know what I mean? Like other creatures that just want to get from point A to point B. And then, you know, it's like we, you know, adopted the Euclid zoning rules Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what creates these massive sprawling, you know, miles and miles of nothing where you could never ride a bike and you would walk out of necessity, you know, and that bus service is horrendous, you know. And, you know, and I feel like we haven't really seen a lot of um, shining a light on examples in the U.S. where you can have density in a pleasant place where being a pedestrian is not a shameful thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, like, the cost of living is not outrageous, you know. Because we really put those two together in planning, especially, like, in, you know, development. Have you seen those images, those memes online? And we're going to go to break here in a second where they show like a, a sidewalk that goes like perfect right angle up and then, you know, to the right at 90 degrees. And then you see the, the grass that the sidewalk goes around where there's a line, a diagonal line cut right across it of where mm-hmm. people actually walk. Right. Mm-hmm. And in this battle that exists between planning and, and what people actually want to do and how they actually behave and how we have to. And I think it was kind of going back to what you were saying, like we can have these arguments all day long or we can go into communities and actually try to see what people are doing. Or be led by those communities, honestly. Uh, right, right. Mm-hmm. And be led by those communities mm-hmm. by, and have that be the first consideration when it comes to anything, anything else sort of starts the conversation there. That's fascinating. And I think that's the thing with Williams, especially, uh-huh. is that. It wasn't the bicycling, it was, bicycling was just the further uh, representation of, you know, development that was done to a neighborhood where people lived, and they were not invited to the conversation, Mm. they were told what's going to happen to their neighborhood, and they're being priced out simultaneously, so it's just like a further slap in the face, you know? And then this development uh, infrastructure becomes part of the selling point for whatever comes into the So the people that replace them. Yeah, Wow. Well, we're going to go to break, and i got a thousand more questions for you. Is that all right with you? Of course. You're listening to On the Block Radio, ho- folks. I almost said, I don't even know what I almost said. You were listening. Uh, we are speaking with Joe Beal and Ellie Blue from Microcosm Publishing and the Dinner and Bikes Tour. And I'll get my head together. All this vegan talk and bike talk. <laughs> is, I'm all hopped up over here. Uh, we will back. We'll be right back after these four. Thanks 
for listening to On the Block, a show that's broadcast from the crossroads of creativity and transformation. Stay tuned for more mind-bending conversation with our guests. I bike because it makes me feel like a part of my neighborhood. I bike because I like to be self-propelled. I bike because it's something that my son and I enjoy doing together. I bike because it's an easy way to get exercise. I bike because it's more efficient and economical. Because it makes me happy. Bicycling is on the rise in cities around the world, but in the United States, women remain staunchly in the bicycling minority. Urban Revolutions is all about inspiring women to get into the bike saddle. It helps readers overcome common barriers, from concerns about riding safely in traffic, to advice on how to look presentable after biking to work. And it explores just how life-changing, and revolutionary even, this simple act can be. Bicycling is a healthy, active sport enjoyed by almost everyone. Not only does it provide vigorous outdoor exercise, but it means quick, easy transportation to and from school. You are the automobile driver of tomorrow, and good, safe bicycle riders often turn out to be the best drivers. But keeping your bike in top condition is only the beginning. Cars, trucks, buses, and bicycles, all are vehicles. All must obey the traffic laws. There has, however, been some debate about the best way to be safe on a bicycle. In the 1970s, John Forrester coined the term vehicular cycling, explaining that bicyclists in the U.S. should behave like and be treated as vehicles on the street. He elaborated on these theories in his book, Effective Cycling, explaining in depth how bicyclists should behave in all manner of traffic situations. The League of American Wheelmen have supported this position, stressing that training and education are a more important and cheaper way of increasing cycling than building world-class separated infrastructure like what exists in Amsterdam. Unfortunately, cycling advocacy under the vehicular cycling model failed to notably increase ridership between 1970 and 2000 in the U.S. More unfortunately, studies report that protected bikeway infrastructure has tripled ridership on one D.C. street and even more in New York City, both with correspondingly fewer accidents. The lack of growth under vehicular cycling seems to relate to the impracticality of having to train each new cyclist in a three-month paid class before they are ready to ride on the street. Forrester documents his criticisms as, Vehicular cycling requires superhuman capabilities. Traffic systems should be designed to be safely negotiated by eight-year-old drivers. Riding a bicycle destroys the capability of obeying the rules of the road for drivers of vehicles. 
Becoming a parent or grandparent destroys the capability of obeying the rules of the road. Suburbia produces a soul-destroying type of life. The people who live in suburbia were forced to live there against their will by a conspiracy of oil companies, motor manufacturers, highway builders, and real estate developers. Forrester claims in effective cycling that his methods provide the fastest and most thorough education and can prevent more accidents than any other method. He provides some unexplained numbers in fancy-looking charts. Even better, these undocumented numbers prove that his methods are even twice as effective as he claims. In fact, according to Forrester's numbers, his methods would actually prevent 50% more bicycling accidents than occur each year. That's preventing accidents that would never have even happened. I feel safer already. He is also helpful enough to rate bikeways in last place for reducing crashes without including an explanation or citation, thus creating irrefutable evidence. Fortunately, the vehicular cycling approach has been fabulously successful at maintaining commuter bicycling to an exclusive fringe activity reserved for everyone, from the most athletic to the least fearful. So if you like invite-only parties and exclusive clubs while being extremely fit and fearless, vehicular cycling may be for you. This is Tiffany Schlein. I'm a filmmaker and founder of the Webby Award, and you're listening to On the Block Radio. All right, welcome back to the program, folks. This is your host, Andy Gerbich. We are speaking with the co-creators, uh, at least two of them, of the Dinner and Bikes Tour, Joe Beal and Ellie Blue. Um, several questions for you. Uh, where did where did uh, Microcosm come from? The name or the organization? Both. Well, I oh. guess. I guess the organization. I mean, like, yeah, like you know, you started in the closet. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm still in the closet. Yeah. Come on out, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not. I'm not sure it's safe yet. We'll send Josh in commando style to pull you mm-hmm. out. He'll, yeah, he'll have good stories there. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I guess the yeah, that's the thing is like I, you know, I, I, I grew up in Euclidean zoning where you couldn't get anywhere or do anything, and it's mm. like. Everything is a grid architecture. That's what you mean by Euclidean grid, zoning. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. And, and I like uh, that. I like the sound of the Euclidean zoning. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's they had a lawsuit. You know, that was like a court case that decided they could do this, and and then they imposed it on the rest of America. Oh wow! It's really, quite a terrible story. But you know, and it, and what it did is it like it created you know the opposite of Portland. Mm. You know, originally where like nobody wanted to live in the city center. Everyone wanted to live far away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you could kind of hide all these horrible things that were happening behind closed doors. Yeah. If that makes more sense. Yeah. You know, and then um, and then you could kind of blame, you know, is, is like a distancing, like, from causation, you know, where, like, everybody was losing their jobs at the steel mills in the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. then you could be like, well, it was these other people you know that were causing this problem it wasn't the bosses or you know like uh you know in reality it was the fact that like this industry was becoming international right we were allowed you know reagan was allowing uh trade to you know make it difficult to manufacture domestically and things like that 
But so, you know, I kind of grew up in that where nothing meant anything, you mm-hmm. know, and like my home life and my upbringing was terrible, you know, like I didn't have education. Yeah, that part of the country was hit hard and hit first, and it's really on the coast that people are starting to feel the squeeze finally of what started in the in the 80s and in the middle of the country. It was the big lie right. about the rotting out of our, of, our, uh, of our industrial infrastructure and all of those jobs and all of those wages, all of that stuff left and wasn't replaced with anything. It's, it's, it's horrific. Right. And so, you know, I mean... Roger I, and me was about that, but people yeah. didn't listen to it. Yeah. I love... I mean, that, mm-hmm. that was really something that spoke to me so mm-hmm. much as mm-hmm. a young person, yeah. you know, because it was like coming out at that time where I was like, okay, this is why all of this is this way, yeah. you know, and, uh-huh. and it was really hard for me to understand, you know, when you're a kid and like your education system is horrible on top yeah. of it all that Oof. you're just like, how come, you know, they say it's like, you just got to work harder, but it ain't like that, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, uh, and where do you work anyway? Right. Yeah. <laughs> work harder. Yeah. And, and so <laughs> work three know. jobs. I'm trying to get one. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so it's like, I would watch all of my like friends and neighbors, parents get laid off. And then, you know, you like, and so it was, and then, you know, there's like this like looming threat of nuclear winter, you know, mm-hmm. simultaneously. And so like really nothing meant anything to yeah. me as a kid. And so like, I found punk rock and I met Joshua um, around uh, a few years later. And that was really, you know, it like gave me meaning and purpose for the first time in my life, wow. you know. And uh, and then I kind of... Um, what years was it? Like, what, um, like 92, 93. Okay. And okay. then I met him in uh, 95, mm-hmm. I think it was. Um, and, you know, and that was transformative because it was like, I was like, this is a way to understand morality and this is a way to like, you know, have to make something out of rubble, yeah. you know? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and it, you know, and it, and it was also like, there was absolutely no shortage of interesting stuff, you know, coming yeah. out of it. <laughs> right. You know? And it was like, I could have something to do five nights a week and all that. But, um, you know, quickly I was like, oh, the thing that's missing is, you know, there's not like a mechanism for uh, reading or, mm-hmm. you know, for mm-hmm. like iconography, but there's so much great art, you know? And so, and there was so much emphasis put on music in punk that I was like, okay, well, I'm going to make the, like, the book arm of punk, you know? Oh, like, cool. that was my whole thing. And it kind of still is, yeah. you know? I mean, it's uh, it'll be 21 years in February. And it's, you know, like... So it wasn't enough to you to, for you to self-publish. You were going to start a publishing company. Yeah, yeah I yeah. didn't really know how yeah, to... You know. <laughs> I didn't have an education, so I didn't know how to write, but I knew what I liked. Yeah. You know, and I didn't know how to edit, and I maybe still don't, but that's fine. You know, you got... There's like... You're good at it. There's other... Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd, I'd done it so much that, like, I know how to, you know, I know how to, like, make something make sense to other people, you know? But... You know, and I guess that's the whole thing. And so this is the funny part is, like, maybe because of my editorial sense and, like, what I gravitated Mm -hmm. towards and the fact that, like, you know, part of it, too, was, like, there wasn't nothing for me that was interesting to me at that time in my life. Yeah. You know? And so I was, like, if I was to do a thing, this is how I would do it because these are the things that are interesting to me. And then the result of that is that, like, I grabbed onto all these things that weren't you know i just wasn't seeing elsewhere and so it was a lot of like social justice and a Mm -hmm. lot of stuff about like gender and mental health and like you know like just basic like diy skills and stuff like that and uh, the funny part was that you know none of it was intentional but the result was that like most of our audience are you know you know impoverished uh women of color is kind of the and that wasn't 
something that I was like, this is a great market to reach out to. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. more the other way around, where I was like, oh, this these is are the people market. that are yeah. interested wow. in what I'm interested yeah. in, you know? And that was really mind-blowing to be wow. like, oh. And, you know, and definitely there was times where I was like, what? Like, how? And it's still that way, you know? Like, the people that come into our store even, you know? Uh, it's still true all this time later and you know and my um my senses aren't really i mean i guess they're more uh, evolved and adapted and stuff but i'm not um like i'm still interested in the very same things and those things are still not represented elsewhere <laughs> well let me ask you this ellie maybe you can speak to this because your work especially on wor- works of empowerment women's empowerment and access and feminism so maybe a couple of the things that you guys focus on in the publishing house or in your film in your films um, about issues that women and non-binary folks you guys hear that yeah. that women and non-binary folks have to deal with in the cycling world oh um yeah i started actually publishing because i i had been working for a um bicycle blog and in the course of my reporting i had encountered all sorts of sexism not just that i experienced but witnessing other people experiencing things and that really was my sort of um wake-up call about like the kind of world around me and the kind of things that are very very obvious to some people and i think have been very very obvious to joe for instance since childhood i was like a little bit more insulated and maybe just a little more oblivious but that was when i started to get angry and yeah yeah, and i mean i've always been um kind of kept my head down and done what i want to do and then only sort of late in the game do the sort of implications of what's going on um come and hit me is <laughs> so after it was i think it was right when i was about to leave my job as an editor at bikeportland.org mm-hmm. um i decided i was going to go out with a bang so i wrote this whole post about all of the kind of sexist things that I'd, I'd noticed and experienced that were weighing on my mind and um it got or in the publishing world in the cycling world in the all cycling the above, world in the i wasn't involved okay. in the publishing world okay. at that time um and yeah it got a really big response which was mostly from other women being like oh yeah mm-hmm you know, mm-hmm. and then from other men being like, yeah, this, we see this too. And this doesn't serve us either. And this sort of like very macho cycling world, that's all very focused on like performance and kind of eating disorders and yeah. um, competition. Like a lot of men were like, that doesn't work for me either. Yeah. You know, like that's, it's not, it's, it's toxic. It's not good for anybody. So um, I started writing, I decided to write a zine about that. Um, so I could have something to like hold up and sell copies of on yeah. the first tour we went on actually <laughs> that was why <laughs> and then I put like issue one on it kind of at the last minute before it went to print because I was like maybe I sh- I'll do another one someday and people actually started sending submissions unsolicited hmm. um, for the second one so I did 12 issues of that and I'm about to put out issue 14 actually after taking a couple of years wow. off um, and it's called Taking the Lane it's a feminist bicycle zine and it has contributions around a topic on every issue not all from I mean from people all over the gender spectrum um, and I've had topics from everything from like religion and bicycles to bicycle science fiction oh, cool. to disasters and bicycles and my one criteria for uh, feminism, I have a very low bar, is that it not be sexist. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, like, not having actual sexist language and also, like, not being, like, unquestioning of gender norms. Mm-hmm. Um, Still this poses a challenge to some writers, oddly enough. Yeah, I get submissions every really? time where I'm like, oh, come on. <laughs> but, you know, I usually... can't get over 
over that bar. Yeah, I, I usually <laughs> work with the person, but sometimes they don't want to. Um, but yeah, so that was how I got started with that. And I've also done a few books. Um, my book, Our Bodies, Our Bikes, actually, we're going to have an event around that at the Lit Crawl the night before Wordstock in mm-hmm. Portland on November 4th. And you're doing some stuff at Wordstock this year, too. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Congratulations. Mm-hmm. That's great. They've Thanks. Since uh, uh, Literary Arts took it over, it's just uh, got its, it's, got its, its swerve back a little better. bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, They really nailed it. And it's like microcosm has never really been, I don't want to say embraced, but even <laughs> noticed by the literary <laughs> establishment in Portland before. So, I mean, maybe that's, that's wonderful. a little around the edges. But well, that's not wonderful, but it's wonderful. That, that's, being, <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, no recognition. Anyway, but, moving on. No, that's wonderful. They're finally changing that. Yeah, yeah. But it is, it's that same thing, you know, and this is the like... I mean, Ellie and I suffer each other gladly, you know, in this way, because we constantly are still sort of derided for our editorial views, mm-hmm. you know, and the and the, and this is still ongoing, you know, almost 21 years later, where it's like, sometimes you're just not invited to the party, but sometimes people are quite happy to go along with you until they kind of figure out your worldview, and then yeah. they're like, we can't have that. Fascinating. This does not is not compatible, you know, simpatico compatible with how you know we look at things, and and there's a weird thing like you know I thought it was like maybe publishing or whatever, and then I found it's the same way in cycling, where you know you're you're kind of there's a there's a we mentality, and there's this idea of like well we don't behave that way we are always positive. And I'm like, I ain't part of the we. Yeah, you I, know, guess like, yeah I guess it's a big know? club that I'm not in. <laughs> and, and it's kind of the same way in publishing, where it's like, um, though at least it's a little bit different, where like you get to have your editorial view, <laughs> and, you know, but you, you kind of have to show up to their parties to remind mm-hmm. them that you exist enough times, and then you get invited a little bit. So what are, back to the other question. So besides the obvious things that, like, when I think, so if you ask me who's the uninformed person here, what I think issues that women and LBGTQ folks face in the cycling world, I think about sexism, and then I think about safety issues, about people being attacked or assaulted oh. or whatever. But there's more to it. And one thing you brought up is this kind of performance-based competitive body image and eating disorder thing. What, what other kind of things that are, are out there that you focused on that that folks have to deal with man i mean i kind of am a little bit hesitant to be like oh it's so bad for women and trans and femme people because in a way it is but like in the same way that it is in everything you know like there's also a lot of victory stories i bet you get to tell too and i guess there's a lot of victory stories and stories of art and creativity and, and stuff too maybe that you know not just a story of tragedy but as an activist at least i guess it's just interesting you know what i mean yeah i mean there's definitely um I feel like almost it's like I spent a lot of years kind of focusing on like solidarity with other women um, and creating these kind of organizations and systems and media. And I do believe in it. And I do feel honestly a little bit that separatism is the best way to build a movement like having like I've been I've sat before in an event with only other women and it's the most wonderful thing because it's the one place where nothing is about gender. Mm. But then mm. there are all these other things that are happening also wow. where there's like class issues and race issues and divides like that. And that's where I think it's really important that, you know, I mean, the word intersectional is thrown around so much. And I think people don't necessarily know what it means. But I think it is really important to not just be a feminist, but yeah. to like be aware of all of these dynamics that are going on around you and like who who is having what experience and who is actually getting to do the thing that they believe in and who is kind of like being 
pushed back or fighting every step of the way. So, I mean, I, I like what I saw when I read your intro, um, which is kind of focus on equity, because that, that's a word that, that really is a, applicable to so many more things. And then once we start giving the isms, they're, they're, we're going to isolate somebody, right? But equity is a word that really is, it's like vegan food. Everyone can, everyone can play. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the very mm-hmm. issue. Uh, so back to microcosm. I know I'm bouncing around a lot. So you had this idea, I'm going to be the punk rock, or I'm going to be the, the lit wing of the punk rock movement. And then how did you start a publishing company out of that? I mean, it's one thing to envision that. It's another thing to do it. And then what have you published? 350 nonfiction books? I mean, there wasn't anybody to tell me I couldn't do it, yeah. though. <laughs> you know? It's like I wasn't parented, you know? Yeah. So it was kind of like... And then, you know, I grew up kind of... The other part of it is like... Um, we have a comic about it that you can get. And I have a book about it, too, Good mm-hmm. Trouble, that tells the whole story about, you know, like how all that happened. But it's like I grew up in the, uh, you know, in the shadow of like the creators of Superman. Yeah. Where like they published a zine mm-hmm. um, in 1929, you know, in Cleveland. That where That's they right. created that character. And then Harvey Picar, who was the oh, guy he was in there too. created, um, you know, nonfiction comics. Like he made comics not be about superheroes anymore. Did you ever check out Michael Chabon's Cavalier and Clay? Yeah. What'd yeah. you think of it? No? Uh, no good? It was over my head. Okay. Yeah, me too, I think. I was hoping you'd explain it to me. <laughs> All right. Never mind. All right. Keep going. But, but you know, I, I knew Harvey um, when I was a young person. Okay. And, you know, and he was super, like, you know, he's the most, like, on the level guy. So he would always be like, oh, yeah, this is interesting, and you should check this out, and here's some other stuff. And I wasn't, you know, when I was a teenager, like, I jazz music was very boring to me. Mm-hmm. But, like, the comic book stuff that he knew about and, like, a lot of the cultural and, like, I mean, it's, and you know, like, I feel like in all honesty, everybody in Cleveland is, like, a political leftist, like, pro-union, mm-hmm. you know, kind of person. But he was the one that kind of helped me frame my radical ideas. Oh, cool. You know? And then, um, all, you know, there was a lot of, um, it was, you know, it's like the punk rock history in Cleveland, like, goes right back to, like, 1976, 77, you know, and so that, and those people were still around when I was growing up, so I could have older people, and then I could kind of, like, pick and choose what was interesting about yeah, all of it, yeah. and then make my own vision, you know, which is, like, pretty weird to do when you're, like, 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. But I started it right away, you know. And then part of it, too, like, the part of the story I normally tell is, like, you know, I lived with four other people, and they all worked nine to five, and I worked four to, you know, midnight. Okay. So I would have nothing to do during the day, so I would try to, like, sleep in as long as I possibly could mm-hmm. to, like, stave off depression. Right. But then... <laughs> After a while, you find uh-huh. you can't do that, yeah, and then yeah. I was like, I need a hobby. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I could do that thing I've been meaning to do. A company. <laughs> yeah, and then I did it, and I had, you know, it's like real estate, you know, it's like there's so many abandoned buildings there. It's like we had space, mm-hmm. so, like, I had room to sprawl out, and, like, you know, I had a closet attached to my, you know, I had a giant bedroom, too. But I could have, I had actually, it was like an alcove with two adjoining closets. So I could like begin to like accumulate inventory in there, nice. you know. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, and so it was kind of, I just started writing letters to people whose work I liked. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I'm going to do this thing. And, you know, it's like, only a teenager is that pompous to You like, didn't know you could, but more importantly, you didn't know you couldn't. Well, there wasn't right, anybody yeah. to say I couldn't. Right. You know? And it was kind of like, and nothing meant anything. Nothing mattered, you know? Wow. So, like, why wouldn't I do that, you know? And it was like, and then I was, um, you know, I had no expenses or whatever. I was young. You know, I had, like, I th- thought I had good health, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, and so I was, like, putting my, my paychecks into that, you yeah. know? And so it wasn't... Um, 
you know, and that gave me meaning and purpose from a very young age, which apparently is like what keeps people alive, you know, into adulthood. Go figure. And, and then so when you came to Portland, it was already a, a thing. Kind of. I mean, it, it, it kind of found its peers in Portland, okay. I think, more. Um, but, you know, whereas in Cleveland, it's like people are really into it and supportive, and that, but they don't um, understand. Like, there's not a support base or, like, a mechanism yeah, like there yeah. is here, you know? Whereas, like, I came here, and there's, like, already stores that are like, oh, yeah, I totally get what you're doing. Like, we should sell that, you know? Wow, and then cool. even Powell's, you know, you can go in there and, like, sit and meet with somebody, and I'm, like, shaking. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, they're like, this is interesting, and this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and like when you're a kid, that's freaky. That's amazing. Largest independent bookstore in the in the country right. yeah, in the and, world. Yeah. And then you know, and then they just give you a check, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, what is this? What just happened? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I guess I had positive. And then you take that check and blow it on cocaine. No, I don't know. Sorry, I was I a know. real sorry. bad drinker. Yeah, yeah. Oh, at that see, time. I was trying to make jokes, and now right. I just brought up. Yeah, a, yeah. A, a but I, I quit, so it was all well. For you. Yeah, you know. Right and, and so that was the whole thing. But again, it's the same where I was like, I was so focused and mm-hmm. I still kind of am, but maybe not so bad. But <laughs> no, Ellie disagrees. I am <laughs> still so no. bad. Is it bad to be so focused? Yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of those things like, could you be 40 years old and start something like that? Probably not. Mm, you know? Yeah, no kidding. Like, you don't have that kind the of... Well of energy. Yeah, and you like, you know everything that could go wrong. Whereas yeah. like... Mm-hmm. Everything already had gone wrong for me. There was nothing to lose. Every, every, only you know? place to go is up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of how I see it. But it's still, you know, it's still super fun. And it's still, and you know, and I think that's the weird part is like, I feel like from the outside it looks maybe a little glossier or whatever. But then, you know, and to me it's like very much the same thing. So it's yeah. really um, comforting sometimes where I'll, like, I'll, I'll do an interview and yeah. somebody will be like, Oh, I see like the punk rock influence or this or that. Or yeah. like, I see you like putting a nod here or there. And I'm like, Oh, thank heavens. You can still see it. You can actually, it's there you still know, right on. It's like, I feel like for, well, you know, I'm probably the like worst judge of that because you know, like, <laughs> like everything I touch is just so like imperfect and scrappy, you know, but like to me, I only see the polish. You nice. know? <laughs> so speaking of scrappy and polish, I want to ask a bikeonomics question. Oh yeah. Where, tell, tell us, our audience that doesn't know about this book what, like tell us what the book is about really in a nutshell and kind of what drove you to write it and what what you wanted to accomplish with it sure so um back in i want to say 2011 2010 i was writing regularly for grist which is an online environmental magazine uh-huh. out of seattle and i was writing about bikes i was their first bike columnist they didn't think it was going to be very popular but it turned out their readers were very interested hmm. um and one of the very first columns i did was about sort of the myth that bicyclists don't pay their own way you know i mean it's if you're ever if you've ever been riding a bike for long enough you get heckled eventually like someone's like you don't even pay taxes for the road i pay for the road with my car and i was like this is ridiculous but i found um an economist in canada named todd Littman has extensively studied our transportation system and economics and he's written this great wealth of very dry academic reports about Mm -hmm, it mm -hmm. um so and i found one that showed just the true extent of how much Every time you drive a car on the road, it costs society actually 
quite a bit of money. And when you ride a bike, it's almost like you're putting money back into the system. Wow. Like just on every level, just on the pure road maintenance level, but mm. also on the health level and on the like parking spaces level is a big mm. one. Congestion, time lost and productivity with travel. Yeah. All of the above. And it's like I'm, you've read the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a or you bit. could write the book. So, um, no, I read. Eventually, <laughs> I ended up writing like a 10 column series and Joe came up with the name Bikeonomics for it and they did a little graphic and I wrote a zine about it and then Joe was like Ellie you need to write a book about this and I was like oh gosh a book how do I do that I don't know but hmm. I did I managed to sit down and write that book and it came out great and people loved it <laughs> and, and people we, loved just, it. we just put out a second edition this month or last month um, Bikeonomics part two well it's not part two it's we've it's revised and updated it we fixed a lot of the typos and mistakes that I made in my haste <laughs> to write it the first time um, the footnotes were not in order was my favorite one mm -hmm. that we fixed. Um, that doesn't really matter. I know, but it does my heart good to think of it, mm -hmm. the, those footnotes being in numerical order. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah, it's been really cool to see the response. Like we were just at a transportation conference and several people came up to me and said, your book helped me make my city a better place for bicycling. And I feel like that actually kind of, I, I, try, I try to take that I try to be happy about that, but it also kind of freaks me out just because the way I was thinking about all of these equity issues was really evolving very quickly as yeah. I wrote the book. And I was really coming to grips with it while I was writing the book. And I do have this fear that my book is going to be used by people who have this dream of creating these kind of like high class bicycling enclave mm. paradises that are very exclusive. And I mean, I know that happens and I know that's out of my control, but that's one thing I tried to do in the second edition is sort of bring home the point that this really is something that throw a wet blanket on our white landia fantasy <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so that's you know we're working on a graphical cool. book that would address all that a little more yeah specifically so are you, I mean I guess that leads into a question I had for you was did you write the book you wanted to write with mm. this book mm, excellent question that is a really good question I would say yes I absolutely wrote the book that I wanted to write at the time uh -huh. it was really hard for me to do the revisions for the second edition because I would not in a million years write that book today mm. <laughs> like I would write well what I would write is the groundswell book today so it's good that we're doing that and then five years from now I can not recognize that at all but yeah I mean it's it's interesting it's um I, I do love that I was able to bring all of that academic research that has been done by so many people and like on the groundwork that has been done by so many people and bring it into this package that is really easy for people to read and really kind of a friendly translatable thing like people just sit down and read it in one sitting it's very quick um it has some personal stories in it um it's got a lot of like kind of number statistical data but i made it not too dense i'm proud of all of those things that's cool so and i'm glad that it exists but yeah. i would not write it today <laughs> because because of the some of the things you were talking about fear about how it might be misused partly yeah, yeah. and i mean partly i think just the questions have changed for me you know, like my question at the time was like, all right, I'm going on these tours and people are arguing, you know, and like I was working online and I was getting comments every single day of people being like, well, you bicyclists are wrong and you bicyclists are bad and you bicyclists are in the way. And yeah. I was like really on fire to disprove them all. Yeah. Whereas now I think, um, I mean, for me, the fight is a little bit different, but I know that fight still goes on. So I'm glad my book can fight it that fight for me and it seemed like maybe you just had some people that like told you what you would de describe as horror stories where they were like i you know this really helped me sell my city on this development project or whatever you know and i you know and i would it's 
yeah, I mean, you can't really uh, determine how your work is utilized. But I, you know, I get it. It's like, uh, it's a little bit painful. I, however, focus on, it's, people love it. And it totally. <laughs> the polish. It, it changed the game, I yeah. guess, is the thing. It's like, it changed the arguments, which was the whole point, yeah. you know? And so now it's like people all the time are like, okay, now I know how to like dispute this, you know, the like stupid argument, you know? And then we get it all the time where, you know, people are like, great, now my city will change. And then, you know, we find the other reality of it. And then the, you know, kind of the causation of groundswell is that um, because even with like every bit of statistical (laughs) argument, it doesn't, you know, decisions, especially government decisions are not based on facts or like best outcome, you know, like we were talking about at the head of the Mm -hmm, show. It's mm -hmm. like, it's really about feelings of people that have a lot of money, you know? And that's a fascinating thing. I have two more questions for you and then we'll, we'll let you find folks out of here. Uh, so you can get home before it gets dark. Um, Mm. are you familiar with a guy named Ed Bernays? You ever heard that name before? Yes. Eddie Bernays was Sigmund Freud's nephew, and he pretty much single-handedly invented the modern public relations and marketing industry in the United States. And he and he moved us from a culture that bought things that we needed to a culture that bought things that we wanted, right? Mm-hmm. And started teaching companies how to appeal to our base nature. And the reason I'm asking you about this is that... Um, you know, I, I watch a lot of old movies, and uh, Celeste, the, uh, my wife and associate producer of the show, I keep pointing behind me, the listeners can't see me <laughs> doing that, um, uh, we, we watched American Graffiti, right, the George Lucas film, and what a, what a, it's a, it's a film to the cult of the car, is really what it is, and not only that, but these giant cars, Right, massive cars, right? That 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 are you know eight feet wide and these kinds of things, right? But not only that, giant. It's a it's a film to the cult of the car, to a massive car that only one person is is in most of the time, right? Creating these kinds of giant things that you sit in and move around the world, isolated. Transformers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and mm-hmm. and and the 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 engineering of that, the social engineering of that, as so much to to say about the kind of culture we've become and how we interact with each other in public spaces. Um, and the car is an isolating influence in that because it puts everybody in this giant glass and metal box and cuts them off from And again, not to I, I, what I love about what you're doing is you're trying to move away from these classic arguments, right? But in another sense, I guess the question is, um, are we? Are, do you think we're moving from that as a society, uh, this culture of car worship? I mean, the Route 66, the get out on the open highway, all that kind of stuff, I see it. Less and less um, mm-hmm. as, as like a trope that's put out there as this thing that we're all supposed to aspire to. It's not as romanticized as it used to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, yeah, I would say, uh, I mean, a PBS made an awesome documentary about Bernays, if you mm-hmm. haven't seen that one. Yeah. Totally amazing. Because uh, as a punk rock publisher, like punk rock subverts the dominant paradigm. And so it seems like you're trying to punch that notion right in the face with what you do. Them's the hopes. <laughs> but, and uh, often it's what alienates us from the very people we're trying to like pretend to be suit and tie people next to, you know, oh, true, which true. is fine, you know, but <laughs> you know, better to, I don't know. Yeah. We, argue we don't about, pretend very well. So we, we, we argue all the time. And this is a real argument where we're like, do we pretend like we fit in and dress like them? Or do we try and just be ourselves and let the people gravitate toward us that do, you they know, are yeah. so on to us, <laughs> but I, to, to your actual question, I feel like, you know, I mean, I mean, that's obviously our point is to like, speak truth to that 
mm-hmm. power and like and you know and more to like the stupid of it you know because there's so much stupid in it you know yeah and uh, and you know and it's just like it's con and you know, and even and maybe this is like me and like my analytical skills as a young person mm-hmm. whereas like i would see the car and i would see the cost and i you know and i used to have delivery jobs and i would just be like it's like it loses money every second it's in your life mm. It makes no sense, and right. yet it's like the city is built in a way to like maintain the system and force people to have no other option. You yeah, know? yeah. And I think that's kind of what is changing now. You know that like now the whole thing is like young people want to live in a dense urban center and are willing to pay more money, and they don't want to have a car. And then you know I don't know if you followed this. There was a great moment where I believe it was Mercedes hired uh, the, the the marketing director from MTV because they were selling so many fewer cars oh, wow. that they were like shit we need to find out how to sell to young people yeah can you can you help us out you know <laughs> and uh, anyway, that's cool. and, and then that's the whole trouble of it is that they're you know it's the same way they're finding that young people don't want to get married young people don't necessarily want to have kids though you know and they don't want to own a car they want to wow. live in like a walkable neighborhood mm-hmm. and that's not really any different from anybody else they're just the first people to like speak with their dollar yeah about it and so i think that's what is like chi- changing sociologically you know rather than like you know and and i guess it's like i feel like th- if you were a millennial now like you grow up in you know the like 2008 recession mm-hmm. you get a, you graduate from college you never get a job. It's like growing up during the 80s, yeah, you know? Yeah, no kidding. And I, and then what's respectable about them is that they didn't buy into it. They right. were like, well, I don't want that. I'm going to like have a happy, healthy relationship with my parents, which is totally bewildering to me. And I'll live with them <laughs> until... I'm with you there, man. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but... And that, but you that, got a better chance of getting me on a bike and eating vegan food than having a good relationship with my parents. <laughs> Maybe that's the way to convince. Yeah, people. right, right. <laughs> and so they sign me up. You know, but that was the one like foot they put forward was they're like, wow. I don't need a car, and that's I don't, amazing. and not only do I not need one, I'm not going to get one. And I think that's you know, so then it's like it's kind of like all this other stuff like gay rights or whatever, where you're like, now we just need to like wait for all the stalwart people to like not be in our world anymore. What you're trying to say is you're waiting for all those geezers to die off. You're well, trying to be nice about it, yeah, but you're, but trying. that's that's not very punk rock. See, I'm just trying to fit in, <laughs> <laughs> get the suit and tie on. <laughs> Ellie, a question for you before we wrap up: uh, Have you guys done any work with Microcosm or with Groundswell with um, with uh, rural? Not urban bike culture, mm. like what folks have to deal with in, in suburban areas. Yeah. Like, you know, what is it like in, in Maupin, Oregon, or what is it like in La Grande for, for bike culture? I mean, that would be really fascinating. Tell them the Indiana story. The Indiana story? Oh, there's so many. Oh, man. <laughs> I was going to talk about the okay. movie about Cherokee. There's a woman oh, named yeah. Cherokee Shill who actually lives here now. She moved to Tigard, Oregon. Um, but we met her when she lived in um, outside of Louisville, Kentucky. Okay. And she had been living in a very rural sort of not urban place and she became famous for 15 minutes and especially famous within the bike community because she was um, ticketed repeatedly and then ultimately arrested and had very expensive legal troubles because the only way to get to her factory job was on the state highway Hmm. and or was it the interstate highway no state highway state highway um you know 50 mile 60 mile an hour road oh wow not a bike lane and she would just go and she would just take the lane like she wasn't gonna ride on the shoulder like she started riding on the shoulder and that just was like not viable yeah um so she would she became very fast and she would just do it and she is um you know not that many people i think would do it like i think she is like a really 
specially like determined and focused person. She <laughs> mm-hmm. is the exception that proves the rule, though. You know yeah, that like yeah. bicycling is not necessarily a choice, and that transportation oh, wow. period is not necessarily a choice. You know, like people have really cars not necessarily so much because they love their cars, but because like outside of places like Portland and even in many places like where we're sitting right now mm-hmm. here in Gresham, mm-hmm. like your choices aren't that great. I mean, I grew up in uh, a suburb of New Haven, Connecticut, and I never had a car as a teenager, so I would walk everywhere or yeah. take the bus, and I just remember being like, I had to have this like sort of Buddha-like patience, which I lost as soon as I started riding a bike. <laughs> but I just remember like sitting there at the bus stop for hours, literally sometimes, and walking and just noticing the world around me and being like, there's this whole world that like nobody else can see. Hmm. Um, but also just being incredibly frustrated because there were all these barriers, you know? Yeah. Like the only thing I ever wanted to do when I was 16 was walk to the Salvation Army thrift store. And nice. buy funky vintage clothes, and there was <laughs> sounds right. There was a freeway on ramp that I just could not get past hmm. without. I wasn't willing to risk my life in that way. Like if I sprinted across it, I think I had a pretty good chance. But you know, it was like the one thing I couldn't do. <laughs> and I just remember the like physical frustration of that. Hmm. And it's like this feeling that I just feel like the entire nation has this feeling, and it's part of the sort of national feeling of like ill health and dissatisfaction and anger that is really what is making people hungry for change and is what is fueling things like the people who come to our events well what's next what's on the horizon for you and how do folks get a hold uh, of everybody when they want to track down your films and uh and books so we're going to be putting all that information on the website when we put your episode up but why don't you give a for the listeners rather than the readers um, we are going on dinner and bikes tour again this November we're going through the mountain west it's going to be our last one like this actually oh so get to it Mm -hmm. the farewell tour our farewell tour is this like a real farewell tour is it going to be like kiss farewell tour where it's like every every year year. (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) no we're going to we're going to take 2017 off like the stones okay for real okay and then we're going to figure out what to do next next. it's like we've been kind of doing this one too long okay and it's been really good, but then, you know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's just time for something new. Okay. You know? And then, but, uh, and folks can find those dates on the website. Yeah. Right. Dinnerandbikes.com. Mm-hmm. And then you can watch our movies that we've released publicly so far. I think there's five or six up there on the website pdot.org. P D O T stands for the People's Department of Transportation. Hmm. And it's .org because we're a humanitarian organization. Yeah. We're not the government. No, we're, we're we're like the government you wished you had. Well, no, that's not true. You you, you do not wish we were the you government. Probably wouldn't <laughs> you may. Well, you know, over the next, uh, you know, mo- most of the studies I've read have said that within the next fifty years, most of the pe- planet, if not already, will be living in cities. And uh, when we look at that, right, we really have to think about how we're going to work together in these spaces. I found a great quote. Um, by a 13th century Muslim cleric, actually, named Shams Tabriz. And the quote says, Cities are erected on spiritual columns like giant mirrors. They reflect the hearts of their residents. If those hearts darken and lose faith, cities will lose their glamour. And I thought of the two of you when I found this quote, because I really do think you hold a mirror up to us and allow us to at least the possibility to, to not lose our luster. Mm-hmm. Right, that's and I and I appreciate the two of oh, you for thank that. You. Thank you. Yeah, oh. that's what we were talking about on the way here, where mm-hmm. I was like, I look around and all I see is how it could be. Yeah, you know, even on the way here, that's what we were talking about. Where it's like, and you know, two instances in my life. Not to cut you off. I'm sorry. That's fine. Um, uh, two instances from my own life, and then we'll close here. Uh, my 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 good friend Phil. 
uh, moved here from Birmingham, Alabama, and I would go around town with him. And um, and and he's a he's a shorter guy. And I'm bringing this up because he has a certain amount of stress when he drives because it's hard for him to see over the wheel. And he's also from a place that's not bike friendly. And so we'd be on Alberta, and there'd be a person on a bike, and he would get this far from them and just kind of, and he wasn't. And he would kind of tailgate the bike, right, in his car for oh. for several blocks, right? And he wasn't yelling at the bike. He wasn't sweating the person. He wasn't angry. He was terrified and didn't know what to do. And he would want to dip out and go around, but then come back. And, you know, and he was acting really erratic uh, and freaking the person out on the bike. And then, you know, the person was, like, waving him off. And I was in the car with Phil, and he's a caring, loving man. He wasn't trying to be aggressive, but he was – I was going, Phil, back off. Phil, back, you know, yeah. back off a little bit. And finally, we got to a spot, and the person – you know, turned around and threw their their channel lock right through the windshield of my friend's Ooh, car, right? Wow. And and I thought, wow, you know, we have a breakdown in dialogue in this city, right? And and it was informative to me because Phil wasn't trying to hurt the person or be angry or this person shouldn't be on the road. He was literally just trying to do the right thing and not harm the cyclist, um, and yet was participating in and creating all of the stress and all of this host- hostility and, like you were saying, this frustration. Uh, another story I think about is that my dear friend, our dear friend Matt Ford, his aunt was the owner of Coventry Cycles on Hawthorne, and she was, Man. yeah, and she lost her life recently um, after uh, being hit uh, on her bike, and you know holds the world Guinness World Record for the uh, for the age group for fastest time on a on a uh, recumbent bike and stuff, and just always a tireless advocate for and watching the family grieve that, and you know her and what she meant for that community, especially the recumbent community. And so again, I thought so much frustration, so much pain, and it goes beyond you know those damn cars. It goes to like we we have to share this space, and we have to be intentional about about all of the people in it and those voices and those bodies um, that haven't been given consideration, that haven't had a seat at the table. We need to start there or, or else we're going to continue mowing each other down. So I just I just applaud you both for doing this and Thank coming you. and sharing this Thank with you. us. And not to be a total hippie, but I feel like uh, a lot of that stuff is really about feelings. Yeah. You know, and, I, and we have a series uh, called Five Minute Therapy with Dr. Faith. And she's a real, like, licensed, you know, doctor of yeah. psychology and does, uh, you know, all kinds of counselor therapy stuff. And it's all, they're all, like, things about that where you're like, when this is what's going on in the car, this is what's actually going on with you. Yeah, wow. Herzine, this is your brain on anger. I think about traffic all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and it's kind of the thing where she's breaking it down for people that don't want to spend, you know, the $100,000 on education or 20 years in school or whatever. And it, you know, and, and she, and I think it's maybe because she has teenage kids that she talks like a teenage kid. <laughs> so, I love the things you said earlier about moving away from like the individual choices to looking at these larger things and communities and stuff. But I also think that's something that there's a mimetic capacity, and maybe we'll leave it here. Um, I've had friends who have moved here from Los Angeles, and they talk about how alarmed they are when they get onto the Ross Island Bridge at rush hour, because what happens when the cars that are on the bridge uh, going directly, and then the two lanes that are feeding in from the sides and how during rush hour even though there's stop signs there and no stop sign on the bridge people zip it up and allow each other to go one 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 and my friend said i've I've lived all over this country and if you were in los angeles you'd be waiting here for four hours to go like nobody will let you in and it's and the thing is is everybody gets this far from the car in front of them because if not somebody cuts you off and so to incentivize that not happening everyone is incentivized to tailgate each other and and you're just Mm -hmm. gripping 
gripping the wheel and you, I mean and right and you're having a stroke and and like the the culture of driving creates that and I think um, I, maybe I'm naive, but uh, but when I'm out driving, um, you know, maybe the thing is I need to get out of a car and be on a bike. But when I am in a car, I think let the person go, back up from the tailgating, do as many, try to try to pay it forward is like try to try to role model mm-hmm. for other drivers. You know, Celeste always talks about it. We're all going to get home. <laughs> it's all <laughs> going to be all right. Yeah, yeah. Let's all just like take a breath and back up a little bit and not claim space in a way that is unnecessarily unnecessarily aggressive. And I, I don't know if where I'm going with this, but I just hope that we can incentivize this in each other in cities to share space in ways where we accommodate for one another. Well, if you'd like to come on a bike ride with us sometime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're willing to wait for me, right? Oh, we're the slowest you ever met. There's, there'll be some competition for who will be slower. Mm-hmm. I did the bridge pedal a couple years ago, and that was intense coming over the Fremont. Oh, that's that a was lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I dug it, though. Yeah, it was fine. Mm-hmm. That's more than I would do. <laughs> but, and then our website is microcosm publishing.com you can find all of our it it leads to all the roads eventually if you all the different things that we do that's the hub connect there yeah yeah. joe and ellie thank you so much for being here thank you thanks this was a lot of fun you're listening to on the block radio folks our guest has been joe and ellie from dinner and bikes ellie blue joe beal dinner and bikes microcosm publishing and groundswell films all right thank you for being here we'll see you on the other side California, right, Joshua? Yeah, Los Angeles. We're uh, on the phone with Joshua Plug. He was supposed to be in our conversation with Ellie Blue and Joe Beal, who were the other two guests for this episode, but um, we had some chaos in terms of the technology. Our ghost in the machine booted you out of the conversation, Joshua, and as I said, uh, Ellie and Joe were able to then freely uh, uh, eviscerate you and slander you and say all kinds of horrible <laughs> things about your cooking and your personality. And so now oh, you sure. will, you will be able to retaliate uh, and the gloves can come off uh, <laughs> a la Trump v. Clinton. Uh, we'll get to the bottom of this. But I'm so glad you were able to call us back. And, and, oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hopefully we'll be a little better than that. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate you calling us back and spending a few minutes with us, man. I'm glad to have you on the phone. Uh, so, uh, the first question I have for you is you are, you are, we were talking a little bit before the show, you bill yourself as the touring vegan chef. And I've heard you, you know, it explain, you know, described as the punk rock vegan chef, um, you right. know, the postmodern vegan chef. I hear all these great, <laughs> great terms uh, associated with you. So maybe let's start with talking on the audience. Yeah, exactly. How did you, uh, how did you get into doing this? Um, and, uh, and then, uh, tell us a little bit about the development of this, of this rock and roll personality. Well, you know, I, I played music and punk rock mostly in Olympia in mm-hmm. the nineties. And I also threw shows and I had, recently become vegan. I was like, what, 25 years ago? Wow. <laughs> so it's not really anymore. But, uh, 
at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I would host people at my house that played in bands. And I, I saw, you know, a few friends of mine from Europe would tell me that uh, over there, people would get backline and a place to stay and food. And I was like, well, they can stay in my crappy house and maybe I can make them dinner. <laughs> you got to bring your own, your own stuff. And uh, so I, I started making food for, for bands. And it was usually pretty run-of-the-mill and crappy, and I, I had a slight flair for it. I, I started going like, well, you know, let me check this spice out and see what it does. So I started experimenting on them, you know, because they're like a captive audience. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and uh, eventually, like, I started to get okay at it, and then I um, started, we'd invite friends over for the dinner in two, and uh, those eventually morphed into dinner parties. And then I started uh, getting a collection of recipes together and finally put it out in a comb-bound form. I mean, that, that whole process took years, and also during that time, I did a personal chefing for Room and Board, and I did a secret cafe in, in my house in Seattle and stuff like that. So, so it developed kind of slowly and organic. And over the years, it took forever, but because I didn't go to, to culinary school, so it took a long time to get, get my act together on a lot of fronts. That's kind that's of how a, it all started, and then when I put that book together, I didn't have any way to sell it other than the model of touring with punk bands. So I called people that um, I had booked shows with previously in California, and I was still living in the Northwest at the time, and, and booked a bunch of dinner parties, had a buffet at a show, had a barbecue, did a cooking demonstration at the noise show. And I came out of California and... and and did those gigs and signed a bunch of people up on a mailing list. And from there I started, you know, touring basically like six months or more out of the year. And I still do it 13 years later since that touring started. And that, uh, now we're eight, we're eight cookbooks into it. Um, 10, including all the three comb-bound ones. Oh, wow. That's remarkable. I mean, when I think about you talking about... Yeah, when I think about you talking about, uh, I mean, you said a few things there I want to ask about. Um, I dig how not only the genesis of your cooking career, but then the uh, how the book came about. Uh, not only so, not only the content of the book and then its creation, but its distribution is kind of punk rock. It's kind of uh, something that totally bucks yep. against the traditional um, literary distribution and creation system, even for things like cookbooks. And so I, I really dig that. It's yep. DIY front to back. I, well, I, you know, I didn't have the knowledge or the patience to try to do it a traditional way. Right. So, um, yeah, that was called uh, Something Delicious This Way Comes, Spellbinding hmm. Vegan Cookery, my first cookbook. The other <laughs> thing... I had a recipe club, too. I would, I would mail people on a mailing list. Yeah. Cards with new recipes on them and tour stories that they could add to the back of the, the comb binding in the book that they had you know, if they bought the book from So that was kind of an interesting concept. It got expensive when I wound up with several hundred people, and I, I called it the Recipe Club. And nice. Doing that via ground mail was pretty pricey after a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think what's amazing is, uh, you know, you're talking about, uh, you know, your early captive audience or these other rock and punk rock bands in the Olympia area. And I think that you're, it's dead on that you can use these folks as guinea pigs while you were first figuring out what you were doing because, you know, yeah. people were filled with so much Rainier beer and heroin, they wouldn't notice <laughs> if you were feeding them something. <laughs> 
utterly toxic. But uh, but I mean, but I mean, so in the early '90s in Olympia, for folks that aren't from the Northwest, I mean, this is sort of ground zero for uh, you know for I mean, I hesitate to use the word grunge, but the punk resurgence that occurred uh, from that area, and so that's yeah, pretty- there was a punk resurgence, there was grunge, there was something of a metal resurgence, mm-hmm. kind of a conceptual one. There was Riot Girl, there was minimalism and you know um queer core so kind yeah. of a lot going on at the time it's remarkable and yeah and an emerging uh hip-hop scene at the time as well in the northwest you know that also involved dance like high performance you know but um yeah there's like kind of a lot happening up there at the time so your veganism, your your uh, your personal veganism, and then the, you know the quest to be this vegan chef—is that something that was um, health based? Was it political? Was it financial, or all of the above? Um, How did that come all about? The vegan stuff, you know, like um, <laughs> that's that's personal, you know. Mm. I, I I just unless I was like super desperate, I probably I probably wouldn't kill an animal. So mm. like, by my logic, it's like asking people to do things that you wouldn't do. You uh, in that way, it's like, more moral, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I grew up on a dairy farm, so even so that it was small and you know the cows were my buddies, but still I was like you know <laughs> like don't want to. It's just like kind of nasty. A lot of people so, call. Yeah, I was like you know I, I, I can do what I want and I don't right. cook. So as as it's I mean I've gone back and forth with that during that period. I stayed strictly vegan for twenty five years, but and I, you know I know a lot about food, so I generally know right one way or another. You know, be it be that be a reaction or just understanding what people are doing. But sometimes you can't always keep an eye on it. You know, so uh, I. Yeah, I do what I can. I guess but, but I, but, uh, I sort of consider it an inevitability. I mean, at some point. Yeah. Like, uh, probably <laughs> everything's going to be vegan by default, you know. I was just reading on that. I was reading that world experts say that uh, by 2050, all or most of the world is going to have to be at least vegetarian, um, or else we're just not going to be able to feed everybody. I mean, we're not doing it now, but uh, but by then for yeah. sure, especially water waste, I mean, grain. But- Meat can be high impact in some ways, you know, for a diet, but, you know, like the whole structure of raising it and dealing with it is what causes the trouble. It's heavy, mm. source heavy. Um. Yes, I could, I could totally see that, especially if there was anything resembling space colonization. It would have to be a totally new ball game. That's a really good point. out there. Have yeah. you seen these genetically modified plant-based steaks? Like they're, they're they call them meat, but they're made from plants. Have you been see, seeing these? Any of these advancements? I, I've been paying attention to it. I haven't gone for the yeah. I haven't gone out for the, the weird rollout of the <laughs> possible burger here. That's it. In LA, it's the Crossroads, which is Taloronan's mm-hmm. shop in West Hollywood. But I, I haven't gone. You know, but and, and is what you're talking about that. It's like. Is yeah. That the thing you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. The coconut oil seeping out of it. Uh huh. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, at, that, at some point, like that kind of thing, you know, you, you, yeah, I mean, although it takes a while to find out what the effects of something that's really engineered on, on people is, you know, <laughs> as far as safety goes, like we've had that. I'm a, uh, right. But, like, uh, I, yeah, um, I mean, at some point, I, I'm slowly working on it now, actually, but I'd like to be involved with developing uh, some plants that don't have the greatest nutritional profile, but use less resources hmm. to be 
grown or raised, um, making them more nutritious would be a fun project. And I have some background with that. My dad was a food chemist, so, um, yeah. My background is... You're never too old to completely do a 180 and start doing... That's true. That's true. Doing science instead of punk rock. Yeah, right? (laughs) Something like that. I'll take my time. My uh, my background in religious studies, I'm a professor of religious studies and mythology, and um, I talk with students regularly about, um, we're moving into a unit on India, and we talk about the sacredness of cows. Are you there still? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm here. <clears throat> my phone started beeping. Um, we talk about the sacredness of cows in India, um, and, and I talked to them about the origins of that, and there's really two um, considerations where this comes about. One of them comes about from the uh, sort of ancient archaic idea that goes way back to like Shatzel Hayek and Gulbeki Tepe uh, in, in, in Turkey, and that has to do with the sacredness of, of uh, psychoactive mushrooms appearing under cow patties. You know, in the Pacific Northwest, mush- mushrooms grow you know, out in the forest and stuff, but in most of the world, you find them under cow patties. And so early on, um, you know, the cows were seen as a sort of, you know, as a grantor of shamanic initiation, that they were, the animal was somehow involved in presenting the, this food of the gods to, to the people. And so why would you want to eat and kill this thing? Uh, but the larger, uh, notion as well is that whoever the, whoever the urban planners were in early Indian culture realized that there would be no way that they would be able to support a population the size that India was would quickly grow to if they were all meat eaters. And so by making the cow sacred, they were sort of socially engineering a set of behaviors that, that would make this, the society. I mean, they still have backbreaking uh, hunger and poverty in India. And if they were massive uh, yeah. hamburger eaters, it would be even worse. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, well, most of the world is, you know, a much lower percentage of their diet is meat than, hmm. than here. We had a guy named Bo Rinaldi on the show once, and I don't know if you know with him uh, know who he is. Uh, he was the the founder of the restaurant The Blossoming Lotus. Okay. And he worked with the Diggers in the 1960s. He uh, he was down. Uh, I don't know if you saw the Source Family documentary about that vegan restaurant in L.A. That was also the religious cult uh, that was run by that Father I've Yod heard guy. About them, but I, I is there a documentary? Yeah, know? there's a documentary on Netflix that is uh-huh. fucking phenomenal that you really have to check out. And uh, and Bo was oh, actually no. a part of that scene. And Peter Coyote called him and said, "I'd like you to come to San Francisco because they had this large influx of people. You know, 19 after the summer of love, all of a sudden, all these disaffected teenagers from around the country just started showing up in San Francisco by the thousands, and they had no money, no job, no plan, and so they had a real humanitarian crisis on their hands. People were getting diseases. They were sleeping on the street. They were getting, you know, their rapes. It was real bad. And also there was no food for anybody. And so the diggers started as, a, as an organization to do many things. But one was to try to address this issue. And uh, Peter Coyote called him and he said, I need you to come up here and help me feed, you know, 11,000 teenage kids that are wandering the streets. And we need to do it for, you know, 70 cents a person a day or something like that or some ridiculous thing, 35 cents, you know, whatever it came down to. And he said he was able to do it. You know, this is in 1960s dollars. But I, it, it rem- well, I'm, I'm telling you that story because uh, I wanted to ask you something about, uh, you know, the dinner and bikes tour. 
uh, Joe and Ellie said that, um, you know, they told me a couple of things. They said that you, once you were at a place and for whatever the reason, and you can maybe fill in the details here that, uh, you had to go to a, a convenience store and throw together <laughs> all of the, the ingredients. And then you were able to like yeah. really cook a nutritious meal for everybody. And so I want to ask you about that and what you, what you made, but that this is a thing you've done as well is that you try to show people how they can create these really nutritious meals on the cheap. And that's, yeah, and that's really that, revolutionary. They're definitely curried bananas, that I can tell you. But you, you have to get the right store that has, like, two pieces of fruit and maybe one vegetable. Right. And, and canned stuff, and they had rice, and they had to be, you know, so there were, like, black beans, and there was rice at that place. I remember that. Mm-hmm. It happened more than once. <laughs> I mean, one, one time I made a birthday cake for John Isaacson out of Little Debbie's and peanut butter, you know, <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that, milk and chocolate, dark chocolate up. Yeah. You know, so that was enough. That time I remember that was like Rhode Island or Connecticut. And then the one Joe and Ellie are talking about was another time when we, we just, the timing wasn't going to work to go to a normal grocery store. And then there, for some reason, I, I can't remember exactly where that was, but they're right. Yeah, it happened once on Dinner and Bikes as well. And then once on the, the Microcosm tour where we had like the screen printing workshop and bike repair and bee shanties. <laughs> That's rad, man. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> You can do it. And, I mean, a dollar store can be a little bit easier than just a regular convenience store, as it turns out, especially if they have more produce. But yeah, there's high interest in uh, being able to make vegan food without spending a ton of money. You know, so you'll you'll see something like, like Tony Yakamoto from Sacramento does plant-based on a budget, which is kind of suggesting to people how to buy a lot of base ingredients cheaply and then supplement it with some fresh vegetables and wind up with a very low bill. I've done things like spent 60 bucks for an entire month's worth of groceries. It's not my favorite thing to do. You get, I mean, like, we're now, I'm just waiting for a check to arrive. And I, you know, luckily I had leftover ingredients from a takeout I did last week that I wound up blowing my money on Oktoberfest. After that first year, it's all gone, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of these things emerge out of necessity, right? I mean, that's an important point is that, uh, you know, part of the punk rock lifestyle is not having any goddamn money most of the time, right, for most folks. And so this yeah. is how can you stay alive you know, and stay healthy? You know, it turns healthy. out it's a lifestyle for most people. Yeah, <laughs> right, over. yeah. You know, that was, that was something that punk rock, you know, I mean, I knew it before I ever became a punk is that a lot of DIY stuff is just culture, you know, and, 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 and it's new to suburban kids and whatnot, but for me, having been rural, it, it was, that's one reason why I took to the whole DIY concept was because I was sort of used to it already. It's yeah. Like, it was, I don't even know what I would call farming. I mean, it's, once we left the farm, then we wound up middle class, not before. I was like, wow, a whole, a whole <laughs> other follow acts. Um, yeah, being rural. Yikes. Anyway, so I mean, <laughs> I can I, do it all over again. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. I mean like, <laughs> 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 live and learn. Yes, yes. Um, you know, so it's crazy to like be in a place that produces milk, and yet the government's giving you milk and cheese. <laughs> yeah, no <laughs> like, kidding. I, you know, we got monitored and sold our shit. <laughs> This is, yeah, yeah. this is not what I need more of. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. <laughs> so you, you bill yourself as the, the touring vegan chef, uh, and, and in your bio when you're not and personal chef and delighter of secret cafe goers. And so, uh, tell us a little bit about these secret cafes. How's, how, how do those work? Oh, uh, well, that, that's just, you know, if you couldn't 
I mean, you could do it in a closed-down restaurant, you know. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's like a pop-up, kind of. But the more legit the kitchen is, the more official it becomes. The less of a secret cafe it is. So essentially, a secret cafe is going to be in a different type of space, like an art gallery or somebody's apartment or a house or a random warehouse. That's cool. And you run it sort of like a restaurant. You find a list of people that you can contact and let them know personally that you're having a thing take reservations, put your menu together. Sometimes people sell tickets. Sometimes you allow walk-ins and you have to have a little bit of wait staff and somebody to do the dishes. And I guess that's what's different from a dinner party is that it's slightly more open to the general public. Although depending on how many people find out about it, that can be playing with fire. Cause yeah. 200 people show up. In a way. Yeah, do you have get to- really pissed off <clears throat> somebody they've shut down, does it? And then they get really messy. Yeah. But I've had actually pretty positive interactions with the health department, honestly, but I I make some efforts, even when I'm just doing personal chef work, to be careful about not making people ill. Yeah, that's good. That's good for the brand. I was actually going to ask you, I mean, you know, so if I have a dinner party at my house and cook some stuff and have people over, that's one thing. But if I, you know, if I call it a secret cafe or if I, if I allow there to be the exchange of funds, whether through selling of tickets or whatever, does that bring the health department and and those kinds of regulations in? Well, I mean, you know, getting, getting, you know, paid for just, I mean, personal chefing isn't regulated. Okay. Um, so no, okay. not necessarily. It depends on how, if it's private, whatever. Um, but if you're t- letting any of the general public involved, people you don't know, that's a different story. You know what I mean? Um, and, and there's a reason for that. Right. Sure, you know? So it, it depends on how you bill it and what exactly you're trying to do as to where it falls in the realm of regulation and propriety. <laughs> When I uh, <clears throat> a couple more questions about dinner and bike store, and then and then we'll let you go. I appreciate you speaking with us. When I spoke yeah, with Joe and Ellie, they talked about um, you know one of the things that that really drives them as you guys go around the country on the dinner and bike store is talking about issues of race and class and gender as they revolve around issues of cycling and communities. And I'm wondering, like with issues of diet and veganism and and this kind of eating, um, they seem though they seem to come up to me as well. I don't know if this is fair to say, but when I think about like the kind of work you do and vegan chefs and, and this kind of eating, uh, what comes to mind is a kind of, um, a kind of white enterprise that, that, that white sort of hipsters in LA and San Francisco yeah, and New York involve themselves in. And I don't think that's what's up and I don't think that's what you do, but I think that's a, that could be a perception out there. And so have you found those issues? Well, the is why the second thing becomes unaffordable first of all. So it's very much a part of, like, and also, you know, the, the loudest voice, the one with the most access. There you go. face of a lot of things like that is going to be a white face in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part of the culture. And, uh, yeah, I think it's important to try to, to do something about it. You know, whether that's, like, making food affordable, involving people of color in your projects, plugging uh, things that are being done by other vegan chefs that are from different backgrounds because mm. it's, it's, to think it's just the white thing is it's representation. But um, the reason why it's so easy to do that is because of access. There you so go. Like, uh, you, you know, there's whole, the whole history of veganism comes from people of color, right? frankly. 
until <laughs> people are living yeah. on society bomb onto it. Well, where did that come from, you know? And then you were talking about, like, diet in, in, in places where people are impoverished, it's going to be, unless their access is only to meat and fish, you know, that's a whole other issue of, that we can get into about, hmm. about accessibility and, and regional. Oh, that's true, huh? Uh, background, you know, like, and it's also a big issue when people trip out on some fishermen and in a totally isolated place. It's like, yes, that's, but you're here with a grocery store. They aren't, you know, right. and that's another racial thing as well. So you, they're, the majority of vegans in the world are white, are not white. And that's true. White folks are the mud eaters on the planet. Remember that. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? And, and to fight that representation and to make sure that vegan food is accessible and that other voices are heard. You know, I, so yeah, I'm on, I hear you about that. I mean, that's really important to say. You know, the politics of it are, are profound, and, and the fact that you're presenting it oh, as a food in general, and absolutely yes, yeah, and that you're presenting it not as a as a as an access and amplification issue, I think, is also huge. I mean, that that point you made about the veganism coming from cultures that from non-white cultures i mean we we're the white folks are the you know the island of mutton eaters right i mean if we wanted to characterize our especially the english our dietary concerns we got our lutefisk yeah (laughs) yeah very good point like that um you know when i brought something up to joe and ellie in our conversation um that you know I i started going off on this rant about health and I was like, I think it's so cool what you guys are doing, you know, and, and you haven't seen me, but, you know, speaking as a, a 260 pound man who drives his car everywhere, right? I was like, wow, I love what you guys are doing because I think this bike awareness um, speaks to all of the things you're talking about, but also speaks to issues of better health. And then when you throw a vegan chef in, like the combination is really uh, incentivizing people towards making better health choices. And the look on their faces while I was saying this was really funny. Um, it was almost like I farted or something in the room. And then I was like, what, what? And Ellie was like, yeah, you know, I'm not really motivated by this motion, uh, this notion of like, hey, everyone should go out and ride their bike because it's the healthy thing to do because we've been saying that for decades and it hasn't worked. <laughs> and so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that in terms of like the dinner and bike tour, you know, notion and what it is that you think you're bringing other than feeding people, which is essential at an event if you want them to stay around and not be angry well, at each other. Yeah, I, I really do. I feel like I'm in a support role and it's fine. And for me, it's important to, and I, I can't have a strong personality. I think it's important for you to be able to subsume that into hmm. a larger project. And I think especially at first when they were trying to bring people into the economics, I mean, that has um, an interesting perspective. It appeals to a certain uh, demographic. Sure. Like, Let's put it that way. But like uh, what you were talking about with race and inclusion earlier, mm-hmm. I think uh, the turn it's taken the last few years has been an important one, and it's about bringing to life other voices in in bicycling and in communities in general and bringing them to the table because people are making decisions about their communities and the transportation infrastructure without any input from them. And I think Dinner and Bikes is about opening the conversation so that the people that are going to the board meetings and things like that see that in their own city there are these other people that they haven't even bothered to talk mm. to yeah, right. living day-to-day with the reality of being on a bicycle. 
in their community and that you have to include them in the process and the conversation. And so that's the tour is about that to me and, and having the vegan food where you run into the same problem in this country, like be a part of that is like opening that as well. And when the vegans come generally, they're more socially liberal or at least one imagined and, and they will sit through the whole discussion. And I think they make that connection hmm. between the types of, well, not just outreach. I think there's a difference between outreach and inclusion in a lot of ways. Oh, outreach in some ways almost implies that somebody is like sitting there, you're going, hey, come check. This but a lot of the time they're active. There's already active groups, you know, in place, and, and someone just hasn't bothered to look for them because it's not part of their reality. They're like, segregated yeah i love that actually anyway. how how joe and ellie talked about how part of the it's not just you guys rolling in you know to to drop your, your wonderful knowledge from the west coast on all these people uh, about how what they need to do to to be more like you or more like portland that that it highlights yeah, yeah i hope not i hope it doesn't come off that way and also like you know i've been talking about coming from a rural community right. so like you know people in other places that are underserved or that people make fun of or think they're butt-ass or backwards, it's like, yeah, that's how people used to talk about us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. It's, it's like, I, I get that. You know, like when I went to San Antonio uh, with them, Fox News interviewed me there, and I, they're like, why would this happen here? And I'm like, Texas is this a diverse place. It's sophisticated. There's all kinds of things going on and wow. all, <laughs> all kinds of interest. This is a logical place to come what a telling we're question. In the country, of course, we're here. Yeah. You know, and then the Fox News guy was like totally scandalized. <laughs> 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 you're in the middle of one of the largest cities in the country. What are you Bikes and veganism to the Fox <laughs> News guy. You might as well have said we're eating Christian babies while having gay sex with Jesus. I mean, like, yeah, forget about it. Those two, I mean, you just hate America yeah, for both. There were a lot of, you know, like African American and, and Latino groups involved with the. Event, so they were just totally like, "What is going on?" <laughs> but, That's what I but, dig. You know, it's all around you every day in a city like San Antonio. There's a lot of activism there. They're there in Houston and, and Brownsville, El Paso. They have a whole history of activism. You know, <laughs> so it's like it's like paying more attention. <laughs> yeah, I dig that part. Uh, like I said, Joe and Ellie talked about how the you know a big a good portion of the program when people come out. Um, after they eat and before they get into some of the other stuff that they do in their presentation has to do with like what's going on in that region, local bike activists. And they talked about, you know, the former gang members riding bikes to raise awareness about gang violence. They talked about some crazy cat in Mexico city, some superhero dude that they were, that's a part of your presentation. Uh, and so I dig the, the multicultural nature, uh, nature of it. And then also the regionalism that comes into it. And when I was thinking about punk rock, um, I think that's another form, like veganism, that is uh, unfairly uh, considered a white enterprise regularly. And, uh, you know, I just want to remind folks that one of the greatest punk rock bands of all time is Bad Brains. And so they need to get their, their heads out of their asses on oh, that yeah. one as well. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you better cast your vote. Yeah, <laughs> no kidding, right? Oh, well, there's competition. They got Saka Khan, they got Yellow, you know? So <laughs> the cars, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's it. I like the cars a lot. They make a good tune. I'd say I that do too. more impactful on me. <laughs> I wonder what ELO fans think about Bad Brains. That's <laughs> that's something else, man. I don't know. I like ELO too. I do too. Yeah. I was tortur- torturing my mom with them a couple of weeks ago. My, <laughs> my, 
My brother looked just like Jeff Jeff Lynn was the guy's name, right? Yeah. And when I was a kid, my brother looked exactly like him, so much so that when we would go out and stuff, people would stop him and ask him for his autograph. And he got so tired of saying he wasn't the guy that he just started signing autographs as Jeff Lynn. It was the amazing. Beard and the big brown yeah, the big, yeah, the big furry Walk hair. Too cool. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that was him. <laughs> Something else, man. Well, what's on the horizon for you? I see you on the website. I, we're going to have all this info on our website when our episode goes up on... Uh, what's happening with you guys links to uh, to your stuff and to where folks can get the books but also the tour yeah and still, the dates still for the all my books um and the, the the comfort eating with nick cave and defensive eating with morrissey with autumn zing the artist and conceptualizer of the whole thing wow um she came, she came out for or they came out i don't know anyway um for uh events uh last weekend here in los angeles which was great we had a party at stories books who did that <clears throat> autumn did oh the, wow the author slash artist of the those two the morrissey and the cave parody books oh they're parody books okay they're, i was like they're pretty fun here come here comes the holidays uh, by you know by but makes an excellent stocking stuffer or <laughs> any of the eight days of hanukkah or for your kwanzaa or for your pagan sacrifice. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> are you working on another book or are you just working on these projects right now? You know, I, I am a little bit. Like the, the people that did the Kachow one, yeah. like I have a, I have a, I want to go through the little list and see if they want to see a proposal for any of my ideas and then have to send them a proposal. So they, they have an option so I have to get that taken care of and then at some point I'll, um, do a little water cookbook as well hmm. and probably either an anthology or redo of each of the three compound books at some point um, you know I'm going to take my time I'm not in some big rush and uh, touring's still coming up another Terran Bikes one in November yeah. You see a gap in there, feel free to book it. Nice. We will <laughs> anyway, direct Hello, Wyoming, and uh, Texas, and where? Colorado. <laughs> I'm something while I can try to figure out where the gaps are. I'm not even sure on place. But uh, yeah, so all that. Touring, touring, touring. I'll probably go East Coast in the spring and Europe at some point next year. No so. kidding. This and that. Yeah. I was going to try to open a. Limited hours cafe here in LA, but um, you know I've been scoping places out. Most of the rent I would make through catering and pop up, so that I could serve the food I wanted. And then if it was unsuccessful, I wouldn't have to change my stripes. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> like, Too bad, no one likes it. I don't care because I'm already paying rent through catering. But uh, we'll see. You know, I'm not totally committed to LA long term. Let's put it that way. More of a it's uh, it's become a you know I mean I don't know if Los Angeles. Oh, and my band Select Sex, we have an album out on a Clear Core label called Our Voltage from Berlin, and our second album will be coming out next year. Yay! Oh, what's the band's name again? Select Sex. It's a it's a hardcore band that be singing, LA based. Nice. If you uh, shoot me yeah, a, a link it's, to the to the band stuff. If you shoot me a link to the band's info, I'll add it to our page when when this episode goes up, so folks can get a hold of it yeah, as well. Sure. That would be yeah, great. People can listen to the album through streaming. Like, is there anything uh, as yeah, a, as we're closing up here? Is there anything that you uh, you know? If there's folks that 
that that you know don't know about vegan eating and vegan cooking uh what would you if there's something you wanted to leave them with uh to to expose them or maybe take away some of their misconceptions what would it be well the vegan food can be whatever you want it to be i mean i I would direct them towards some of the standard places you know so like i was talking about tony earlier so plant-based on a budget good and interesting website um um some Kitty Burns, like that, does a blog from. She's in Portland and I used to be from New Orleans and did the book Tesla, which is like a Ethiopian inspired cuisine. That uh, she's cake maker to the stars and a couple of other blogs that have a lot of free recipes. Uh, yeah, awesome. Uh, let me think here. You know, and of course, Isa's great. You know, so any of her cookbooks are fabulous and simply heavenly. That one by all those monks in Nebraska is a good starter. <laughs> stuff and it has like 600 recipes or something totally crazy crazy amount of recipes <laughs> that's a good one you know and it teaches you how to do a lot of things from scratch which i think it's important you now i know? I went to um, the Esalen Institute once, and I think this is where a lot of that, when I was talking about the sort of white, upper-class, new-age uh, vibe associated with a lot of vegetarian veganism, I went to the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California once for a, a friend's workshop during the Joseph Campbell uh, Mythology Week, and uh, I met a guy there whose family owns uh, the Morningstar Company. Right? Oh. And so he, you know, he comes from that money, which I'm assuming is considerable money. Uh, and he said that growing up, uh, you know, his dad was was a part of that group of people that were sort of like that looked at this kind of eating as as religious, as a religious commitment. And um, yeah, were they Adventists? I, I wonder if they were. Yeah, I thought Morningstar was the same as Worthington that that was their background, but yeah. I could be wrong. Maybe that is what it was. And uh, and he said that they his dad made them say a chant at the table every night before dinner and the chant was something like mutton is nothing but we're rooting for gluten and they, <laughs> and as the, the, yeah, the kids yeah. have to say this like prayer every night kind of thing to the to the food and i well, thought that was fantastic. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i thought that is fucking amazing man speaking of bad brains i gotta get my pma on maybe that's been my problem right <laughs> i need like some catchy jingle Right? <laughs> See if you can get Dr. No to help you out with it. <laughs> well, Joshua, yeah, please. Actually, I have this, Go ahead. My little pockets, the Dosh pockets. It's like, uh, you know, like an empanada, samosa, pasty, always tasty, fun to eat, a vegan treat, Dosh pockets. Hot pockets. Hot pockets just buy me out and, and make Dosh pockets, which can have anything in them. That's amazing. Dosh <laughs> <Toss> pockets. <laughs> <laughs> I also heard something yesterday that was amazing that in uh, Indonesia, there's um, which is a Muslim country, there's a halal certification that is forcing them to change the name of the food hot dogs because you're, you're not allowed to eat dogs in halal culture yeah. and, and they were like this might confuse a lot of people and so we need you to rename this food and I was you know and I was laughing about it not because I wanted, I'm sitting here making fun of Muslims I was laughing about it because I thought of all the reasons to not eat hot dogs the name of it is probably the least offensive thing about it it's actually what the fucking thing is that you should really be concerned about before you put it in your mouth well Joshua thanks so much for talking to us man this has been fantastic yeah absolutely our guest is uh, Joshua Plug. Yeah, absolutely. The traveling but touring, not traveling, touring, vegan chef. Uh, well, but, you know, we don't want to get mixed.
stuff with other people. <laughs> Author of your most recent book is This Ain't No Picnic? Is that been, is it the most recent, or do you have a newer uh, one? Well, that's the second. Yeah, that's the most recent one I did myself and with Dalton, uh, Dalton Blanco and Bryce Cooler, the photographers. Um, but now uh, there's a, one that I did the recipes for, too, which are um, the more more comfort eating with Nick Cave and the sense of eating with Oh, right, right. Those two you just mentioned a second ago. <laughs> cool, man. Send me the links to that stuff and, and we'll get that onto the site as well. And uh, for our listeners, we're going to put the Dinner and Bikes tour schedule, a link to their site, and uh, all of other Joshua's projects that he has going on separate from the stuff that he does with Joe and Ellie. Uh, you've been listening to On the Block Radio, folks. Our guest has been the third in the in the triumphant uh, triumvirant trio i don't know i'm making i'm trying to wing it here at the end here so who the hell knows what i'm talking about but the dinner and bikes so joshua plug the vegan chef uh has been with us and we so appreciate it man we will see you folks on the other side starts in 2011 um, I was biking through public housing and this young girl was like mommy 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 there's a black girl on a bike uh, so then after that I was tell- talking to my friends about it on Twitter and we started using the hashtag black women bike just to talk about it well the goals of the organization are really to um, get black women interested in biking women and girls to get them on bikes safely riding confidently riding and there was this tension and so black bike lanes became a pseudonym for white people and so it was really starting the using the hashtag black women bike to talk about we're here and we do bike and within that we started a Facebook group and here we are almost five years later four years later we have about 1500 women in our Facebook group so my name is Monica Garrison I am the founder of black girls do bike so our goal is to get women to ride more to meet each other and ride together to support one another and promote skillshare. You know, if someone could just simply be introduced to cycling, then they would fall in love with it just like I have. So I started the Facebook page, Black Girls Do Bike, and then we have 35 chapters around the country of ladies who ride, and uh, those chapters are anywhere from 500 to over 700 members. So the true numbers, I don't know, but there, there are a lot of us out there. You know, some people say, oh, black women bike, oh, that's so racist, why can't you just bike? And I'm like, yeah, that's cool, but I've been to the Bike League Summit. I can count. You know how many people are there and as long as I can do that we're gonna be black women bike we try to keep it ladies only so we are inclusive in that way but we also you know we welcome support from our male members our husbands you know that that whole um, and we do limit it by gender and I think the reason is is that it's important to give women a, a space 
to talk about some of the challenges um, that they face. We all need different things. We're all cyclists, but our needs are by no means the same. One of the reasons why I think it's important to have um, people of color, and not even just black people, I think, you know, Latinos and everyone else at the table, it's to make sure that we're representing those racially sensitive topics that that aren't the norm or if you're a mother who bikes and you need to you know you got extra delicate cargo with you your your needs are, are different you know, one thing i can impress upon the entire bike community is imagery is so important and if people can't see themselves in the picture then they don't think it's for them but you need sometimes someone to say you know i look like you i can do it let's do it together that they did a infographic but very innocently showing um white people on bicycles through a black neighborhood and i said so and i was very blunt and i said yeah this is very nice i think this is a great graphic but i think that we also need to show this is a black community so i'm just gonna be very clear if you want any hope of moving this forward we need to show black black kids black young people um if we're going to talk about pedestrians show somebody with a stroller you have to show the community and and also showing a little patience and introducing ourselves to the community so before we start pushing and pushing on government let's build our momentum with the community and find that common ground like i've heard folks say well you know black women can ride bikes they're not prohibited from doing it but a lot of times you, you put that on yourself you put those limitations on yourself so in terms of of our perspective it's you know do i have body image issues you know is that keeping me from getting on a bike or you know have i not exercised well for the most part those are the types of cyclists that we feel like our rides draw out because they want to feel comfortable on bikes and and, and our regular monthly rides are a way to do that african-american women we've got high rates of obesity and and um being overweight so sometimes it's intimidating to think oh yeah I'm gonna get on a bike and ride you know I can only do a mile well that mile is a powerful mile look at you Veronica you're young you're fit I can't do what you do that's cool because I have members who are older than me and who are larger than me who are doing it and, and so I think that they get to see those examples and see people that look like them and I think that's really one of the reasons why the black women bike movement is gaining momentum which is why um Black Women Bike this year, we are moving a lot of our programming into majority black neighborhoods. Right outside of Washington is Prince George's County, and um, I cycle from there to work into the city. It's only about seven miles, but it's great. But we're going to start advocacy um, out in Prince George's to make a safer suit little road. And, you know, really advocacy is at the core of what we do, because what we are is creating an army, if you will, of uh, giving black women the tools that they need to bike, but giving them the language that they need to fight for better in their neighborhoods. Because we have um, the numbers that we do and the access to you know, black women that want to bike, people are coming to us because they want to hear our perspectives and they want to get us involved in um, particular initiatives. Um, for every one woman you get on a bike, she gets two other hurt friends on a bike. Um, and, and, and that's been consistent across um, all the women who've been a part of our program. Because we're in numbers now, we now have a voice that we didn't have before. The fact that our council members, we have the credibility with our elected leaders here in D.C. So we do have two women that have been nominated by at-large council members and that serve and represent us uh, here in D.C. We really have to address racial differences. We can't run away from it just because it's a bicycle. Um, and so I'm really encouraged um, by that dialogue that's starting to happen.
You've been listening to On the Block Radio with Andrew Gurevich. The show is produced in Portland, Oregon by Michael DiNapoli at MD Productions. Theme music by Moving the Mountain. Closing music by Jonathan Oak. Look us up on the web at ontheblockradio.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to tune in next week for a brand new episode. Previous episodes can be found on our website. Thanks for listening. Oh, you're beautiful kitty kitties. Oh, look at you out there. Beauty like a bolt, light in a darkened hallway. New minds looking at this world and our lives through the perspective of apocalypse children. Standing dusty in the barren highways, standing broken before the fathers who were meant to make us whole, but who only lied to us about what it meant to be a man, about what it meant to be a woman, about what it meant to be a child of this doomed 